Ability to speak might not make you intelligent, but we're going to try to prove otherwise. This is the Clashing Sabers podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and with me is my co-host. Hey, it's Drew. I presume that's my my time to interject, right? Yes, that is. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, finally. Oh. <laughs> you're a, pro- you're a, prof- a professional now. Yeah. Hooray! My yes. mom's going to be so proud. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, also along for the ride with us is our other co-host. She is, I'm just going to say it, she's the best friend in the galaxy. It's Lindsay. Oh, shucks. I don't deserve that. You do. There is. I have a loth wolf sitting in my podcast studio now, and that is all because of Lindsay. And I have a porgs examining a lightsaber pin that I carry with pride on my backpack because of Lindsay. And if you know me, you know I'm not a crier. Apparently, in my old age, I'm starting to get a little emotional because my eyes watered a little bit. I'm not going to lie. There's no one in the galaxy who deserves it more. And it's like we have a best friend set because I have the matching Loth Wolf in my office as well. Wow. We're so cool. Maybe we can like travel through portals and hang out with each other. Guys. We got to get Drew a Loth Wolf. We got to get Mark a Loth Wolf. He sounds a little jealous. I am. I am halfway through season three. Give me time. Okay. All right. All right. I almost think I know what you're talking about. The magic and the reference. And our other guest tonight does know what we're talking about because she is a huge Rebels (laughs) fan, just as we are. It is. uh, I wanted to say an oldie but goodie, but that sounds bad. But then again, I just (laughs) said it. So. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have the return of Ash to the Clashing Sabers Podcast Network. Hello. Hooray. Hooray. So we had to have Ash on for this episode, one, because she's awesome, but two, because we are talking about Rogue One, and Ash, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is your favorite Star Wars? Yeah, this is my favorite Star Wars, yeah. Okay, so Whoa. like... I love Rogue One so much. <laughs> when we were making this list, it was like, there were some movies I had blank, and there's some movies I had, like, certain people... You know uh, that I wanted to have on those those episodes. Like you had to have Brian and Katie on for Phantom Menace. You have to have Ash on for Rogue One. So we're really excited to uh, talk about that today. But first, let's uh, let's reflect a little bit on where we've gone so far. We have talked about the all the prequels, uh, much to the bane of of Drew's heart. Um, we have covered <laughs> Solo with the Tatooine Sons. And then, of course, today we are covering Rogue One. Now, uh, we were doing a little bit of a giveaway uh, on our last episode. And uh, all you had to do was go leave us a rating and review and shoot me an email and let me know uh, that you you did that. And we had somebody who did half of that. So, J.K. Dodo is uh, an iTunes review we got. It says, the best scum and villainy there is. I don't know how to take that, but I'll. It's a five star <laughs> review, so we'll take it. Uh, I think you're the scum, and Drew might be the villainy. Yes, <laughs> yes. and you're the and. <laughs> I'll allow it. <laughs> scum and villainy is it. like the best part of Star Wars, though. So I would take that as the highest of compliments. You know, at what? least in my 
my opinion. I'm going to take it that way. <laughs> so, um, JK Dodo, uh, if you would just email us at clashingsabersnetwork at gmail.com or just let me know on Twitter, and I will uh, get that uh, Revenge of the Sith novelization out to you as soon as possible. But for this episode, we, of course, have to have a Rogue One-themed giveaway, and this giveaway has... <laughs> so we're going to blow up your home! <laughs> Hooray! Yay! <laughs> Sign up here! To... Intergalactic terrorism! Hooray! You have to start somewhere. <laughs> Save it! Save it! <laughs> so, um, speaking of Krennic, seriously, this thing has been sitting on my desk since Christmas, um, and I know that because this is what I got Drew for Christmas. Um, it is a Krennic pop vinyl, so... Uh, it is in box, in pristine condition. Um, it's just been sitting here waiting on this episode to finally come is around. It, is it weird to say that I currently have a Krennic vinyl on my desk right now? Not at podcast? all. <laughs> Not at all. That is completely appropriate. <laughs> I I have it's like of- four or five porgs surrounding me right now. It's just, it's it's a that brand. Yeah, I've got I've got the whole Rogue One crew on my desk right now. See, I need to do that. I need to. I have all my pops, and I just kind of randomly put them up because I was like, ah, oh, just let them be. However, but then it kind of bothers me because I can never remember what I'm missing from each movie. So I think next year when I put them out for the school year, I'm gonna organize them by by show or by movie. So pictures of that to come probably. Anyways, um, so of course, yes, all you have to do for the giveaway is to leave us a rating review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, because of course we are everywhere now. Um, it Just search Clashing Sabers or Clashing Sabers Podcast Network. It comes up differently depending on the app you're on, and I'm still working to figure out why that is. But either way, shoot me an email, let me know that you left the review, and you will be entered to win. All right, now that that's all out of the way, here's the important stuff. Ash, what are you Star Warsing lately? What am I Star Warsing lately? Um, I have been reading Rogue Squadron again, which I do Ooh. about every other year because I love those books so much. I, I say the Rogue Squadron series; it's the X-wing books. Um, I'm on <laughs> I'm on Starfighters of Atomar right now, which is my favorite Star Wars thing I think that exists. Um, and yeah, that's what I've been Star Warsing lately. And well, and I've book? been rewatching level, re- levels, rebels. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so good at podcasting, guys. I swear. <laughs> Which book number is the Starfighters of Atomar? Seven, I think. Book seven. Okay, so th- is that with Wraith Squadron? Yeah, that's that Wraith point? Squadron. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, the it Rogue ones are more fun for me. I've always liked the Wraith ones more. Um, <laughs> you wasn't the face one of the characters? Is that his name? Yeah, I love he, face. He used to be the uh, he used to be like the Imperial Hollow Star or something. Basically, yeah, the Days of Our Lives guy. Yeah, he's the poster boy for the Empire, literally. And his name oh, is boy. Face. Yeah, that's his nickname. <laughs> okay, want to say his real name is something like Garen or Gorin? I cannot remember. To be perfectly uh, honest with you. You're supposed to just be like, yeah, that's it, absolutely. Yeah, sure, absolutely. There you go. You're so good at this. Amazing. Brandon will edit that in in, in, a post. Yes, I will turn that up all the way and make sure that everybody hears it. All right, all right. Listen, listen, (laughs) you. Oh man, good times. So, uh, Drew, what about you? What are you Star Warsing these days? I am. I am halfway through season 
three of Rebels, um, which is pretty exciting. So we actually have met our good buddy Wedge Antilles, which I didn't realize that's how they were bringing him back into the story. Um, evidently, they kind of the gang picks him up from the Imperial Pilot Academy at some point, and that's how he defects, which is not the way I remember it being, but that's fine. Um, I've been I think this is going pretty well. It makes me more excited to have the Mandalorian come out because I feel like a lot of rebels would be better if they were given full hour long episode treatments and they get the chance to really kind of dive into and and breathe some of these storylines a little better. But it's still really good. It's still a lot of fun and I'm I'm plugging through it. Well, that's kind of what Filoni had with Clone Wars, right? With having multiple arcs, you know. They wrote all the they, they wrote the whole arc, you know, at one time. So it was like writing right. out a full hour hour and a half show you know much more of the cinematic style that uh if rebels is lacking it is in that yeah it, it doesn't have enough time to delve into to certain right. aspects and i feel like that's going to be a big a big key factor and hopefully the success of mandalorian we, we hope there's success in there anyway with you know john favreau being kind of the program figurehead and and, and driving a lot of that but teaming up with filoni and his sense of storytelling is going to be really really exciting to see and i'm, I'm very excited to, for that project to finally drop in november did they tell us november like 12th or something november 12th yeah that's all right, right cool good deal see I, I'm very excited about The Mandalorian, basically built off of the two of those guys and how well I'm hoping that they work together. Because if they let me down, so help me. I will delete that account so fast. <laughs> <laughs> Ash, what about you? How are you feeling about Mandalorian? Oh, I'm oh, I'm extremely excited. Um, yeah, it Everything I've seen so far from it see, makes it seem like it's exactly my kind of thing. I've always been a big fan of like the scum and villainy aspect of Star Wars and like my favorite Star Wars characters are ones that don't necessarily have the force. Um, and I've always liked that aspect of it. And so I'm re- oh, I'm really excited to see where it goes. And I love Pedro Pascal. He's great. Um, so, yeah, I'm really excited for The Mandalorian. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I don't know what I, I don't know if, if I've seen him in anything. I know. I know. I need to watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> um. But what else has he been in? Like, what other big things? I know he's been in. He was stuff. in Narcos. Didn't watch and, that. And uh, the Kingsman sequel. Oh yes, he was. Okay, I did see him in that. Yeah. Okay, I like that one. Yeah, he was good in that. I'm excited. I got excited about him getting excited at the Mandalorian panel. Yeah. Like I literally was like, that's exactly what I would do if I was up there. Um. 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 It's really cool. Yeah, yep. he was a treat to watch during that panel. That was, was a lot of fun. He was during it. Oh, it was good times. Good times. Lindsay, what about you? What are you Star Warsing these days? So I'm actually Star Warsing something pretty new. It's not even a, um, you know, a show or a book or anything. It's actually a new website. It's called Ooh. happybeeps.net. And if you go to it, you can create an account and you can start to go through all different types of Star Wars things, whether it is the Star Wars books, comic books, different toys, different games. It's really just a big database of everything Star Wars ever released. And you can mark down what you own and you can get these charts and this percentage going. What so if you in say, the world? Yeah, this it's is amazing. amazing. It's amazing. You guys got to check it out. So you can go in. And say you're collecting the vinyls, you know, the Funko vinyls, you can go in, mark which ones you already have, and you can see, okay, my collection is 73% of the way there. 
What? And then on top of that, there's even different um, charts of the day. So every day you can go on and check out, it's like right up our alley. You can go on and see, you know, how many um, Marvel comics did they put out between 77 and 81 versus 2015 to 2019. And it gives you kind of Star Wars by the numbers. But the the feature I kind of find myself playing around with a lot too is they have this interactive box office model where you can go in and they give you different options so you can see what Star Wars movies have made the most money. So when you go in at first glance, of course, The Force Awakens had made the most money. But when you do things like adjust for inflation or maybe you want to include any of the IMAX releases or just the original oh, releases, man. you can start, yeah, you can start to really play around there. Um so I was actually talking to the creator of the website, Bill, and it is actually a newer project, which I was shocked to believe because it seems so built out already. But he is constantly, him and his team are constantly adding to this. They're building out their database for what they have. And it's kind of a cool time to go in and create your account. It is free. Um, but you can go in and create your free account, and because it is still pretty new and they're building it out, they're really open to different ideas and really just constantly working to develop it. So it's it really is something I think we would all enjoy. Um, so that's happybeeps.net, and it's just been a ton of fun to go in and mark off kind of what I've collected since 1999 and what I still need. All right, well, that's the show. I think we all have stuff to do now. <laughs> <laughs> and this is now the Happy Beeps Podcast. <laughs> the Happy Beeps Podcast Network. That's so cool. Oh, man. I'm very yeah, excited about it was, this. It was so addicting. I saw it at first. I was at work. I was like, oh, I'm just going to take like 30 seconds and go through this. All of a sudden, it's like two hours later, I missed calls. <laughs> I'm like, well, this isn't what I thought my dad was going to be. Oops. Mr. Boylan, why are you always on your computer? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Rating? Yes, yes, that. <laughs> it's Saturday afternoon. Go home. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that. So of course we'll we'll link that in the show notes for sure. Um, I already have it saved onto my home screen on my phone so that I can mess around with this uh, tomorrow, which coincidentally is Star Wars Day. Do you guys get excited for Star Wars Day? Dude, I, I wore. My Star Wars Sperry's today. I wore a Chewbacca shirt to the gym. I wore a different Razorback tank at work to show off as many Star Wars tattoos as possible. And then as an added treat, my entire team at work, even, some of them even went out and bought their own Star Wars shirts so that this way they could oh, dress up too did. to show support. Dang, of course they did. That must be nice. <laughs> <laughs> so good and my my senior director came up and i thought i was gonna get like a you know you can't wear a racer back you know put put a sweatshirt on or something and she goes oh my god you guys are just so cute i love this <laughs> <laughs> oh man I don't, I don't normally do anything for star wars day but i am getting a star wars tattoo tomorrow so <gasps> oh. what are you getting? i'm getting a bb8 nice so yeah with oh, a pork on his head Aww. So, because I, uh, like, last year, twenty seven, no, 2017, yeah, it's 2017, I lost a bet where my friend, a friend uh, that a friend and I made, so I have to get a pork tattoo, and I've been putting it off 
for like two years. <laughs> I remember that now. I remember hearing you talk about that. That's been yeah. a while. Yeah, it's been like a year and a half. But yeah, so I'm getting BB-8 with a porg on its head. That's pretty awesome. So it's cool. That's cool. I honestly, like, it's kind of nice that it's on a Saturday this year because... You know, every I'm the I'm the Star Wars guy, so everybody's like, "Hey, did you know it's May the Fourth? Hey, May the Fourth be with you." And I'm like, <laughs> "Thanks. I don't know what I'm how I'm supposed to reply to this." It's it's you like just tell them you tell them that the real Star Wars Day is on Sunday this year because it's Revenge of the Fifth. Exactly. It's like when when like any piece of news comes out, they're like, "Hey, did you did you hear there's a new movie coming out?" And I'm like, "No way. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> this is did you see the new trailer?" Okay, well, that... How many times did you guys get that? That's my favorite, because it's just kind of like, yeah, yeah, I did. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I know it exists. <laughs> I make so him explain it. I'd be like, like, what are you yeah. talking about? What, what do you mean a new trailer? new trailer for what? <laughs> just make him explain it, and then suddenly you're not the weird one anymore. My, my favorite one was for the Rise of Skywalker trailer. My dad texted me. He's like, did you see the new trailer? And then 30 seconds later said, of course you did. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> 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 a couple nights before that actually i guess my dad was in orlando for work and he texted me this picture he got a boba fett hat so he texted it to me i'm like oh dad that's so cool i'm so proud of you <laughs> he thought he was gonna get me he goes do you know who this is <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> yes <laughs> that's like when uh when anybody asks me like you know just like somebody who's not a, a Star Wars fan or maybe just seen the movies, they're like, who's your favorite character? I'm like, oh, Ahsoka. And I just say it like all casually. And they're like, huh? I'm like... <laughs> that's, like what, that's like when I used to tell people my favorite Star Wars character was Mara Jade. <laughs> ah. and, and you're like, do I explain it? Do I just let it go? I don't know. I don't know how much I show my addiction. All the way. Show, just just lead with it. You just go with it. <laughs> Let your freak flag fly. <laughs> I mean, I usually Higher. <laughs> Higher. There you go. That's right. Um, so we, we probably should have started the show with this, but it's too late now. So we're doing it now. Um, of course, we are recording this on Friday, uh, May 3rd, with tomorrow being May the 4th. And uh, so this will come out afterwards. So, uh, you know, share all your May the 4th stuff on our Facebook group. But this will be a more somber May the 4th uh, this year because, of course, of the passing of Peter Mayhew. Um, he passed away at his home. Uh, he was at least 74 years old. And uh, we just we we are going to do a Chewy retrospective in the near future. But we wanted to make sure um, to give the appropriate time so that we can really look back on him and the character and everything that he has provided. So just as a quick, uh, just around the horn, uh, ask this question on our Facebook group, but just real quick, what is everybody's favorite uh, Chewbacca moment? And Lindsay, let's start with you. Yeah, mine is actually when they are on Bespin and 3PO goes missing. Um, Chewbacca is really the, the only one who is concerned about his whereabouts and being able to put him back together in one piece. And I think it's just a nice, subtle characterization of Chewie and just his his overall concern for the well-being of his friends and his ability to 
acts, you know, I think when we say he's the co-pilot, a lot of people might assume that means sidekick. But the, that moment to me shows his ability to be more than a sidekick and he has his own independent way of thinking and he's going to do what he knows is right. Um, so it's, you know, it's a, it's a smaller sequence for him for sure, but I always really enjoy that part of Chewbacca. That's a good one. Drew, what about you? I'm going to stick with the Empire Strikes Back theme and go say that the moment when he and Luke are kind of departing uh, ways for the time being, Luke's about to go off to the battle and, and, you know, Luke gives him or Chewie gives him the big old fat hug from behind. And he's like, okay, okay. Um, That's really one of my favorite moments. It's just kind of one of those. He's at least being open and honest with his feelings, whereas all the rest of the characters have to play at some kind of game about not being terribly open or they got to, you know, couch their the way they feel in certain things. They can't say it out loud, but Chewbacca doesn't have that problem. So that's that's still my favorite part. Awesome. Ash, what about you? Um, mine's a more kind of smaller moment, I think. My favorite Chewie moment has always been after Han gets out of Carbonite and he just, like, Chewie just comes up to him and hugs him and then like ruffles his hair and, and Han's like, oh, all right, pal. You know, that's always been one where I'm like, oh, like that's your best friend. And that's the moment where I like feel the most that Han and Chewie are best buddies. Um, so, yeah, so that's my favorite Chewie moment. Yeah, for me, it would be that moment uh, right before Han gets put in Carbonite where Chewie is, is trying to defend Han and, and throwing the stormtroopers off the platform and everything. And then, and, and this is the real moment that sticks out for me, when Han tells him, like, there'll be a time later, you have to look out for the princess, he shuts it off, and he's just, like, in mission mode, and he, he protects the princess, and Shadows of the Empire has a lot of problems with it, but I think uh, that storyline in particular between Chewie and Leia and his adamance to protect her uh, really sticks out for me, and so I've always appreciated that. I think it's interesting that, like, None of us picked any, like, big, crazy moment. It's all the, the subtle little things, um, which is, is very, very Chewbacca and very Peter Mayhew. He was a quiet man, but always was there uh, and had a good conversation. And, and you never heard anybody say a bad word about him. So may he rest in peace. Uh, he gets to hang out with Carrie now. So heaven's going to be a lot more interesting. Moving on to some more exciting uplifting maybe i don't know um things we're gonna sure. talk about rogue one uh which <laughs> depending on your point of view what i think about rogue one i think exciting and uplifting exactly exactly <laughs> everyone dies it's so uplifting wow spoiler alert i didn't know that Gosh. was i supposed to watch this movie before we talked about it <laughs> listen <laughs> so i let's we have to let's make this public Brandon, when was the last time you sat through the entirety of this film? Okay, that's cheating. The, Why? No, no, answer the question. No. Answer the question. Answer the question. Uh, probably a month ago. Your Honor, per, uh, permission to treat the witness with hostility. <laughs> <laughs> permission granted. A month ago? Yes. Do you know that I watched Attack of the Clones right before we recorded that one? So it would be fresh in my mind. I sat through I that thing and I today. did it for you. I watched Rogue One today, too. I just didn't get to finish it. <sighs> Keep going. Let's just move along. Move along. Sorry, I'm not a real fan. You're not. <laughs> 
All right. Well, we're going to take a break for Drew to cool off, and then we're going to come back and do our top three, bottom three. If the Empire has this kind of power, what chance do we have? What chance do we have? The question is what choice? Run, hide, plead for mercy, scatter your forces. You give way to an enemy this evil with this much power, and you condemn the galaxy to an eternity of submission. The time to fight is now. All right, and we are back, and we are, of course, talking about Rogue One. I think this is really when I I came up with the idea of the series, I think this was the one that everybody was looking for to the most, uh, if we're being honest, because this this movie came out, and it was just a smash hit both in the box office and for the majority of fans. Uh, I feel like a lot of people that I listen to or talk to, like it's up there with the Empire Strike Back Revenge of the Sith conversation about what's the best movie. And of course, Ash, uh, for you, you, you said it is your favorite movie. And so as we are jumping into this, if you are new to the the podcast and you haven't been here for one of our top three bottom threes before, here's how the game goes. So we do our bottom three, and this is either three things that we didn't like, uh, three ideas of how to improve the film, anything of that nature. It's not necessarily like, oh, this sucked. But um, just some some critical analysis of aspects of the film. And then, of course, top three is exactly what it sounds like. It's our best of list. So we've got a lot to get through. Uh, I know we're going to have a lot of conversation about this episode or about this movie. So let's go ahead and jump into our bottom three right away. And, Ash, I'm going to toss it to you first. What is your bottom number three or your thing? You're kind of like, whatever. I would say this was incredibly hard because there's genuinely not a moment of Rogue One that I dislike. Um, (laughs) But I will say the one thing that bugs me, bugged me when I watched it and it still bugs me to this day is Dr. Avis and Imponda Baba being on Jeddah. That's the one time, like one of the things I didn't like about Solo a whole lot was like the, the wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of references to things. And Avazon and Pondababa just felt like it was hitting you over the head with a frying pan. Like, hey, they were in A New Hope, remember? Like, <laughs> like that's really what it felt like. So I would take that scene out entirely. And it's almost like the same line, too. Yeah. It would have been one thing if they, she, like, bumped into him and, and, like, they just looked at her or something. But it's the same yeah. line. Watching it this time was was weird because Pondababa's head... Looks way too big for that body. <laughs> like I was like seriously, like it is as wide as his shoulders. I don't know what happened in the the uh, costume department this time. And Doctor Evazon doesn't even look like the same dude in the cantina. Like it's it really stands out. Actually, I'm completely with you on this. Is probably the most egregious moment of like, hey, we're a Star Wars movie. Remember how much you like that stuff? It's like, hey, we nerds, could... remember this? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Movie you like remember? <laughs> All right, so wait, Ash, question for you then. Did you feel the same about the C-3PO and R2-D2 quote-unquote cameo too, where it's just like hitting you no. with a frying pan? No, I didn't feel like that one was hitting me with a frying pan, pr- primarily because, I mean, they're in every single one mm-hmm. for the most part. So I kind of expected it. It also made sense in the story to have that kind of acute moment between them because like yeah they're on Yavin it makes sense that they're there I guess you know I mean there's no reason for them to be on Jeddah no absolutely not no Avazin and Pondababa is the one that's like okay you have no reason for being here at least with R2 and 3PO it's like okay they're on Yavin it makes sense yeah they had a whole cantina's worth of aliens to pick from and they went with those two guys yeah 
I'm like, what's the fascination with them anyway? I've always found them incredibly creepy. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I always kind of ha- roll my eyes at that point of uh, but, A New Hope. Hmm. That's interesting. Like, it, I think it has to do like because they actually interact with the main characters. I mean, the only other is I'm trying to think of the other people in the cantina bar that they inter- interact with, and there's Boshek, and there's the bartender. Is there anybody else that they actually deal with, like Luke or Obi Wan or Han or anybody? Uh, I mean Han and Greedo, but well, but Greedo point, showing Han, up would Han's have been worse the than team. the Phantom Menace deleted scene. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 She right. That would have been worse. Could have killed him to put Momo Nadan back in there. That would have been cool. He's fun. Or an Ithorian. Just Hammerhead. Yeah. I love how we had the same thought at the same time. I them. love Ithorians. I had a I had a toy of a hammerhead, and it was like one of the only aliens I had. So every alien I had was Ithorian. Get ready the for the galaxy's edge. He's he's force sensitive, so it would make sense for him to be on Jeddah, no less. See, it all Is makes he? sense. Yeah, it's all connected. He had a. Like had, I didn't know he was. <laughs> Oh, it's like poetry. Well, Ash, it's been fun having you on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just gonna go. (laughs) Yeah, in in the Lindsay in in the old card, the old Star Wars card game, he had a a force sensitivity rating of four, which on a scale of one to seven puts him right at the same, right underneath Luke at that point. Yeah, it's not so bad. Good for him. He was hot, man. He's good. Good for Hammerhead. He was. I think he's. Is he listed as an alien or a rebel? I can't remember. I'm gonna go find out. I'll be back in a little bit. Okay, card well, games, guys. It it's the future. <laughs> it's the future. <laughs> All right, Drew. Endgame, let's take it to you. Two. What's your what was the bottom, original question? What's your bottom number three? Oh, I'm I'm busy looking up Star Wars cards. Hang on a minute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, my number three, and this is a this is a little bit picking some nits, which I guess is the point. Um, the first. 15 to 20 minutes of this movie are very super planet jumpy. We jump from planet to planet faster than I think we do in any other Star Wars film. And while I don't have a problem with the new elements of storytelling that they use, like the new techniques, we'll talk about those later. But it was very odd that they jumped from the farming planet to the Ring of Kefreen to Wobani to Jeddah to Yavin 4 and all these places back and forth. And you don't it, that's very difficult to kind of keep up with. I feel like that, I don't know if there's a way to streamline that or maybe we pick places we were already familiar with instead of introducing two brand new locales and then in never, ever going back to them. Um, I don't know if there's a, a cleaner way to do that. I remember being in the theater thinking that when we find when we first see Cassian that I, I thought it was going to be Narshada. So I thought it was going to be a, a previously established location, maybe not in the films, but at least a name we had known before. But that didn't end up being the case. So I, I, it's, it's, I'm not a huge fan of that. I think it's okay to revisit some of the locations, which is why I was really glad that they brought Yavin 4 into the mix again. Made really good sense for the story. Um, but I don't really think that jumping from planet to planet to planet to planet all so very quickly uh, is, is a really good portion of this film. Yeah, uh, I'm going to reserve comment for right now. I'm going to come back to that later. Lindsay, do you have any uh, thoughts okay. on the beginning of that mo- on the movie? Oh, dang it. He is listed as an alien. And I have to make a correction. Momo Nadon was listed as an ability three, not a four. Oh. So he's force attuned. Idiot. My bad. Just I will fire the intern. 
Uh, this is why we don't trust you. <laughs> this is why. This I is why. <laughs> this is why. Um, no, but in in regards to the, as you so eloquently put it, the planet jumpiness of the first twenty minutes. Super planet jumpy. Super <laughs> super, super planet jumpy. Um, I actually do like the opening in the very beginning. You know, even just having that like big music note come in and we we zoom into that planet um i really like it because it sets it apart from other star wars movies Mm -hmm. and there's there's very right at the start this is what you're in for it's not going to be what you're used to we're really going to set the tone and we're really going to set the pace here i do though when you list it out it seems like so many I but yeah. it, it kind of works for me because when we have the time jump and then we're introducing so many characters, my problem then isn't that we're jumping from planet to planet. I think we were trying to introduce too many people too abruptly as opposed to just having them weave into one specific storyline. I think you might be onto something with that. I, I agree that the opening sequence before you actually get the title card is really good. And I think that works for just the reason you said, because it's basically a flashback and because we can associate it with the past. And so it's OK. We don't have to go back to that because it happened like 15 years ago. So that's not I think that one works. It's when we bounce back and forth from we start with I think you start in Wubani, um and that's a, re- it's a really neat experience because it's not something we've seen before. They're in the old Clone Wars tank and the stormtroopers are, are kind of worn out and dirty. And, and it feels very different. But then it jumps again. It jumps from place to place to place. And maybe that is the, the method of introducing the characters is a, is a little bit uh, choppy in that particular fashion. I don't know if there's a way to smooth that out. Like maybe we didn't have to have... Cassian get his own planet to be debuted on. It would have been pretty cool if he kind of bounced out of the shadows when they, they brought Jin to the uh, command center there in Yavin 4. But I like the sequence that Cassian gets as the introduction because it tells us a lot about his character. It really it does the best job of establishing him. Um, I think he probably gets the best establishment sequence. I don't think Jin's is very strong. We'll talk about that one later. But I, the the back and forth. If you're not like a, a, a super nerd like like we are in this kind of stuff, it is very easy to get lost in this film. I had a lot of, of, of people. Well, okay. When I say a lot of people, the few people who told me their impressions about this film, because they knew I would go off for an hour. A lot of them thought this was a sequel to the force awakens and they recast the character of Ray with a new actor. And so yeah, they were very the disappointed. I I yeah. Heard the same feedback. Yeah. So when we go from planet to planet to planet, it only adds to the confusion. I kind of wish there had been a little bit more concrete way of kicking things off. And the opening sequence, I thought, does a really good job of that. But I think it blows all of its goodwill very, very quickly when when it it starts its, as previously mentioned, super planet jumpy action. Do you think it would have been a better idea to to kind of firmly establish the timeline in starting with the Death Star? Like being like, hey, this is a thing that's happening right now, whether that's the Genosians or Krennic or Tarkin or something like that. Just start more maybe some earlier in the movie yeah. had that establishing thing of like, hey, this is a prequel. This is not The Force Awakens. 
Yeah, because Solo did that fairly effectively, where it had just two or three cards of just simple straight text that explains when when this is occurring and what's going on, and it really establishes some footing for the audience. And I do think that is a direct response in the or a response to the reactions to Rogue One, because I think when Rogue One kicks off, Lindsay, like you said, with that big musical sting at the beginning. It, it, it gets your attention and says, this ain't your daddy Star Wars no more, which is fine. It's, a, again, a really good way to open it up, but it's really easy to lose people and who, who are not coming in with the concrete kind of education that a lot of us have. Uh, maybe there's a different way to do that. Um, we're going to talk probably a lot about Tony Gilroy as we get closer to the end of things here, but the way he handled the third act of the film, if they had applied those talents to the first act of the film, would have just this, this would probably be the best Star Wars movie. Well, and I think part of the problem comes with the marketing, too. Uh, I think they depended a lot on people remembering that Vader is dead and when the Death Star was and things like that as they marketed the movie when they could have used like the trailers and stuff to set up the time uh, that it's taking place in, you know, like before yeah. Luke Skywalker blows up the Death Star. I, I think that would have that information would have kind of disseminated out and, and less people would have been confused. But of course, you have like back to back years you have a movie coming out with a, a a white brunette female you know lead that they they have similar looks to them um you know and, and you've got super weapons and it, it's just it, it's star wars so it's poetry it rhymes um so there's a lot of similarities that go on but yeah that is what something they dropped the ball on there is, is yeah kind of we, we know that it can be it can be done because of the way like the Phantom Menace was marketed with the, that amazing one-shot poster of, of little uh, Anakin casting the shadow of Vader yeah. on the side of the wall is really the best way to go about it. And there's nothing that could have communicated what, was ha- what, what those movies were about better than that one image. This film doesn't have any kind of classic iconography like that. They probably wanted the Death Star images to do that, but I don't think it was very successful. Not only that, but I the mean, trailer is not very honest. Well, but yeah. Vader, Vader is I, not, I guess Vader is not, they kind of wanted to keep what he was doing under wraps, and I appreciate that. I mean, he was very, yes. very briefly in the trailer, and I respect that a and lot. not even they the first one. He wasn't even in the first trailer at no, all. It wasn't. it wasn't until, like, the second or third one came out that they show, like, the back of his head, and I kind of, w- I'm with you. I wish they had kept that a complete surprise. If they had kept that out of the marketing materials entirely, like, we would have all gone crazy about like, that. I think we all remember, we probably all remember Yoda in The Last Jedi. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't oh, know how yeah. y'all felt about that, but I remember being completely, like, blown away by it. And I remember I... thinking, thank God I didn't get spoiled for this. Um, and imagine if that moment was Vader. Like, oh. he didn't know he was in the movie. See, I, I was so when I did it to away by Vader, though. Well, because of what he did. You know, well, I, I think that Vader having Vader... Having Vader in the trailer is one thing when it was the shot that we got, but there was no way we could have prepared ourselves for those final, you know, two and a half minutes of the movie. Well, that's true. That's true. But I like the way that the movie did. Again, jumping a little too far ahead in our list. We're still on on (laughs) number three of our bottoms at the moment here. 
the way they escalate those kinds of reveals is really well done in this film. It's like you get 20, 30 minutes in and that's when you have the Death Star, but then you don't get just to the Death Star. You get the return of Tarkin and that's a pretty big deal. That kind of got a lot of attention in the theater. We were really excited to see that. And then it's not till a little bit... Let me be excited about Tarkin. Don't giggle that at me. That wasn't me laughing. I was just remembering when I went to see Rogue One with my sister and she leaned over to me and went, who the heck is that guy? My wife did that. Oh exactly. She was like, who is that? Are we supposed to know who that was? And I was like, shh, I'm watching a movie. This is important. First I shushed her and then after the movie, I turned to her and go, I am never taking you to another movie again. <laughs> you mortified me. <laughs> She looks and said, don't embarrass me in front of my cool friends. <laughs> Everyone's watching, Cindy. <laughs> All right, but that I think that's enough. So, yeah, again, my number three was just the, the whole planet jumping back and forth. This opening 20 minutes is tough. So who are we kicking it to next, Brandon? Well, is I'm, it Lindsay's turn? Well, I'm going to go ahead and take it because we were talking about the trailers okay. a little bit. And that is one of my issues um, with the film. And it... I know people had big issues with, oh, this wasn't in, this wasn't in, and that didn't bug me so much because I felt like at least the feel of the movie was the same, um, and, and I I mean, it's the movie-making process. It, it was many more scenes than normal uh, were in the trailer that were not in the movie, but there's one shot in particular in the trailer. I can't remember if it's in the teaser or the full trailer but it's that shot with Jin on Scarif where she's walking down to uh, realign the satellite dish and the TIE fighter yep. comes up yep. and here's yeah. here's what bothers uh. me about it when well first of all the, the trailers for the standalone movies really let me down because you have this shot that was really exciting and then in Solo you had the line thought you thought we were in trouble there for a minute but we're fine it's fine and I loved that line. And that line wasn't in the movie. And no. so now I'm like... Oh, yeah, it wasn't. No, I know. And, and that was like the first reaction I had. I'm like, my line wasn't in the movie. Um, <laughs> so I, they let yeah, me down. I'm with you. Saw, Saw has a line in that, that, that uh, first trailer where he says, like, what will you do if they catch you? What will you become? Yeah. And that's when you have the shot of her in the hallway dressed in the Imperial Guard outfit, and she turns and looks above the camera, and none of, none of that is in there. Well, here's what, and here's what really bothers me about the TIE Fighter one is that was never in the movie. That was oh, a, yeah, none that of was it purposely is. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, 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 no. Those other shots were in the script. The TIE fighter shot was never supposed to be seen. It was a scaling oh, really? shot. Yes, they were using it to scale Jin and the CGI and everything. And one of the, I don't know if it was one of the trailer people or somebody who basically had more power than Gareth Edwards at that point came in and said, no, that's a really good shot. We're putting that in the trailer. And there well, was I don't. I don't- I don't think you can let Gareth Edwards escape some of that criticism, though, because he was the one he directed the shot of Jin walking down the tunnel and turning and facing the camera. They weren't filming anything for the movie. They were literally just playing around on stage and they did that through a camera. And he says, wait, do that again. And so she just saunters down the hallway, turns and looks above the camera and he captures it and puts it in the trailer. So they knew it wasn't even in the film. They weren't going to use it for anything other than promotional materials. I think somebody did a, a, an analysis and something like 40%, I don't know if this is accurate or not. Most statistics are made up on the on the spot, about 67% of them are. 40% of that trailer is not <laughs> even in the, the film. So that kind of stuff is, is 
it's not troublesome for for the film. It's just kind of disappointing to know that the things that we we are set and given ahead of time in order to build that anticipation is not even going to be in the final product. Well, and it's, that it's, it feels di- a little disingenuous. Well, it's kind of this problem with modern movies in general, right? Like there's there's whole shots in Infinity War and Endgame that aren't in the movie that they purposely most were like, of the trailer for yeah most of the trailer for the movie Brave from Disney is not in the film. So you're yeah, right. This I mean, is definitely something that's more common. But dang, God, can like we this, not get it stopped? It's almost like this this insane fear of spoiling anything that they're willing to make fake shots and put it in the trailer just so people don't yeah. have any idea what's going on. Yeah, it's really it's really weird. I don't know. It's dis- yeah, I agree and then, with you disappointing. And yeah. And then we get things I don't know has anybody seen the uh the Godforsaken Sonic the Hedgehog movie trailer in the past oh few days? Oh man. Avoided, I've avoided it so far. <laughs> I watched it just cuz I'm a glutton for punishment. This is your public service announcement. I'm, I'm sparing I'm a Sonic you the, the Hedgehog fan, man. I had to sit oh, there after man. that trailer and just have a second and going like, oh my gosh, what happened? <laughs> you did it twice? You poor soul. <laughs> oh, man. Guys, guys, it's real bad. It is, is it like funny bad? Or no. Is it, no, oh, it's just I'm bad. I'm getting that time back. It's, oh, just no. this, it's just this side of offensively bad. I remember just sitting there after the trailer going, that was disappointing. That wasn't even like mildly entertaining. Nope. Um, it's not even funny how bad it is. Lindsay, Lindsay, listen to me. Sonic the Hedgehog has human teeth. <laughs> oh, oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, like, the fact uh, that you even know that now. <laughs> beautiful set of like George Clooney pearly whites. And it's in the head of this abomination uh, with red sneakers. It's just ba- it's bad. It's bad. Like that. It's bad. So, moving on. Lindsay, your turn. All right. My number three didn't like about this. I still don't really get the character Mon Mothma. And I know we're supposed to just take it for granted at this point that she is, you know, the be all end all and everyone respects her and everything she has to say. And now that we've had so much more from her since Rogue One came out, you know, we've had her in Rebels, we've had her in Queen Shadow, I still don't get her. And for Rogue One, for her to come in and me to sit there in the theater and think, oh my god, it's Mon Mothma, everything she's about to say is going to be totally flawless and I need to accept it for absolute truth. That kind of fell flat for me, and I was hoping that Rogue One would give me more insight into her and understand her leadership a little bit better, and I still just don't after this. You want to know what would help with that? What would help with that? A Mon Mothma Bail Organa political thriller. (laughs) (laughs) Better yet, how about instead of a political thriller, a buddy cop movie? (laughs) I'm fine with this too. That's, Brandon is referencing my my podcast Skyhoppers. That, that is it's a Skyhoppers reference. Never, yeah, I never shut up about a potential monopoly. <laughs> hey, for me and Drew, can it be written by Aaron Sorkin? Yeah. Because <laughs> if if that's the case, we are in. I mean, it's basically you know President Bartlett and 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 his wife Abby. So that's what I, I was gonna, gonna say. Humbly. 
Jed? <laughs> the one person on the podcast who hasn't seen The West Wing. I'm sorry. No, nope, um, nope. I no, haven't seen Brandon it either. Has not either. Okay, all right, Brandon. <laughs> oh, this oh. is good. Oh. Ah, it's even now. <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> Listen, guys, this is an important piece of of critical history that you guys have, have clearly overlooked. You have to go back to your teachers and demand a better education now. Bringing it, bringing it back to Mon Mothma, I will say, Lindsay. It, oh, yeah, Mon Mothma. I, I disagree because I, I really like Mon Mothma. And I think it has a lot to do with, like, Aftermath and... Um, uh, the, the, the rebels and stuff like that. I thought her in this movie was really good. I do get what you're saying. Like you don't really understand her as a leader in this very much. You know, you're kind of well, like, oh, and, she's there. And I wish I could even after aftermath and after bloodline, but they just always keep saying what a great leader she is. Well, yeah, and they just, just keep saying things, but we never really see her do anything. Yeah, um, I mean. The the one Mon Mothma moment that I really enjoyed in this movie was um, when she kind of like smirked when she found out that Radis had left to go fight at Scarif, and I thought that was really cool. Like, she, like was, her, her hands was... were tied, but at the same time she was like, "Yeah, go get him, Radis." I like that one a lot. Yeah, I actually think this is something that the novelization did a little bit more justice to, and being that we got um, excerpts from her, I don't want to say journal, but like her data pad entries. And we oh, were yeah. able to see how she talks about other characters. I thought that did a lot more justice to her than the movie. I think she's yeah, one I of agree. those characters that is better served in a book because most of her dialogue is, is internal. You know, she's yeah. a very soft spoken, uh, person for, for such a, big figure you know she doesn't she she's very short in her words and and so when you get those moments of her kind of sitting and and thinking on her own or even the moment uh with thane and lost stars you know where he's kind of uh, a little uh, on the tipsy side of things and and come comes out to her and and, and everything uh yeah. yeah those moments i think work a lot better for mon mothma and and so maybe that's why she works better in like the the novelization because she's she's having that time to reflect on the people and how they've impacted her journey. So that's interesting. I like my Mothma. I like that. Uh, what's her name? Genevieve O'Reilly, isn't that it? I was just yes. gonna say, and it's nothing against Genevieve O'Reilly because I think she is a great actress, and she she plays the character really well. It's just that the character still doesn't have a lot of depth for me, and because of that. I'm not necessarily able to understand why people just follow every single thing that she says at this point. That's fair. That's fair. All right. Uh, let's go to our number twos. Ash, what's your number two least favorite thing? I'm going to, this was really, this is really hard, but I'm going to say uh, the, oh gosh, board, board gullet. Oh mm -hmm. yeah. I can't, I still can't hear what he actually says. Like, I still, I, the only reason I know the name is because of the memes. Like, uh, to this day, I've never understood a word that Sagarera says in that movie. Um, oh. <laughs> I'm also hard of hearing, so that has a lot to do well, with it. Well, no, like, in all fairness, in all fairness, when I saw the movie the first time, I was like, what did he just say? Gesundheit? I don't know. But the whole, it, it's, it's not just like the whole Borgullet thing, I mean, not being able to understand him. It's that whole scene feels wildly out of place with everything else that's going on. You know, it felt like one of those things that should have been left on the cutting room floor, at least in my opinion. 
Yeah, it did not add. Oh, no, no, that. don't say that. Borgle is a treasure. It is. It's one but of those. Why? <laughs> why is he a treasure? <laughs> Defend it. Okay, okay. Here we're we're gonna jump ahead a little bit again, and you may or may not remember reading this about two years if you ever visited the actual ClashingSabers.net website. Borg, the whole the whole Sagarera scene there at the at the beginning is to demonstrate that he is the Darth Vader of the rebellion. He is kind of the the brute force, no holds barred nonsense. He has no problem getting his hands dirty in the wet works of if of pursuing his political goals. That's his particular um, his role in this particular film. Borgullet has an association with the Imperial droid that Vader uses to interrogate Leia on the Death Star. It's it's supposed to be the, uh, an equivalency there between those two things. It's a little bit weird. It's a little bit freaky. Yes. So it's a little bit, it stands out because it doesn't match anything else in the universe, but it's their system of interrogation. And it's, and he's drawing those parallels between those two characters, the Vader and between Saw in their ruthlessness. So he, they didn't want to give him an interrogator droid because that's exactly what Vader had. But they had to give him something. They gave him something else, and it's just this is the monster, the creepy moment of the movie. This is the Wrath Tar moment of of the film, as it were. So I I think that he plays a role. It's not really well outlined. So if you're watching it, you, it absolutely I think a cool take or a legitimate take is to say what in the world is this doing? But I I feel like there's a lot of parallels that they're trying to use between Saw and Vader, and that comes up again later on in the film, even when Krennic goes to Vader on Mustafar. I think there's a lot of, of similarities between those two events. So I'm a big fan of Saw. I think he's a very interesting character, so I will defend him to my dying breath. And, and oh, it's not Saw like too. an ironic defense like of Mace Windu. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna side with Ash on this as far as Borgullet. We'll leave Mace Windu where he is in the grave. Um <laughs> maybe you don't see him die. <laughs> there's because. no body so, yeah. Mason Snow. We're going by Game of Thrones rules. If you don't see it, it didn't happen. Um, <laughs> Drew, I think that it's it's a really nice way of looking at why they had it, and I agree that it is mirroring it. It just doesn't move the story forward, and that's why I agree with Ash that it could have been left on the cutting room floor because we don't, you know, looking back at the end of the movie, that scene made no difference. Well, I think what it does, it, it, it sets up one other thing, and this is a slightly tenuous connection to that. Saw says at one point that the effects of Boar Gullet ha- has a tendency for one to lose one's mind. So the, the threat there is to Bodhi Rook to say, I'm going to do this to you, but it might destroy your mental ca- uh, capacity. And it, we see some evidence of that, where when he's in the prison cell, He's not responsive to anything that happens in the cell next to him when everybody else can clearly see him. You know, Baze basically threatens him through a wall and he doesn't even flinch. It takes Cassian going in there and saying, hey, are you the pilot? Are you the pilot? I'm a friend of Galen Erso. And Bodhi is brought out of his funk by the connection to Galen Erso. Part of what makes Bodhi tick is that connection. I think there's undertones here where where Bodhi's needs and wants kind of things. He wants to make a difference for good in the galaxy, but he has trouble finding his spot in the galaxy to actually belong to. And Galen Erso helps give him that. And when he is able to 
connect back to that moment when that when when Cassian says the name of Galen Erso, it triggers in Bodhi's mind, oh, this is what I'm supposed to latch onto. And it actually brings him back out of the funk. It's one of the reasons he trusts those characters enough to jump in their ship when they're es- escaping the destruction of Jeddah. Now, granted, where else is he going to go? It's not exactly like he had a lot of options, but he stays with those guys for a reason. And I think it's because they're able to build that connection while they're in the cell. And then Baze even goes and breaks him out of the cell instead of shooting him like he had the perfectly good opportunity and and plausible reason to do so. They could have eliminated Bodhi's character right then and there, left him to die on Jeddah, but they didn't. And I think they do that to demonstrate the connection between those two characters. Characters, but they can only make that connection if he is put into a state of mental discombobulation. And to get him into that state, they have to take away his mental state. And to do that, they use our good buddy, the Borgullet. Well, but this you could have done. Like... You oh, sorry, go ahead. You could have done that with like having Saw's soldiers torture him. Like I, Borgullet. That's what I was about to say. Yeah, it, it feels, and this has been one of my, really my only big issue with the. The Disney era of Star Wars is the the monsters just don't feel natural. Everything kind of feels like a monster of the week kind of thing. You got Borgullet, you've got the Rathars, you've got the thing in Solo in the Maw, and Dianne, it all, it's yeah. all trying to be the Dian. Di- I don't know how to pronounce that. The <laughs> yeah. trash monster. The, the trash monster. Yeah, the Dianoga. Thank you. Yeah, it is. Dianoga is the first one. Empire has a giant space slug too. So don't. You know, no, this no, is no. not an unprecedented thing. I'm not saying. Oh, I'm not the, saying the they don't Rancor. fit. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying they don't fit in Star Wars. I'm saying they just feel out of place because they're not being put into the stories correctly. Like all the the monsters in the original trilogy, they fuel the story they're a part of the story they're not there just to be there and like if you go to force awakens the Rathars, i like that was my okay this is i'm going to the bathroom scene when i went to go see force awakens in the theater because it just like yes it showed some of ray's force sensitivity but other than that it didn't really add much to the story and that's kind of the same thing with borgullet here like i feel like there were better ways to get bodhi to for lack of a better term lose his mind you know, um, where he has to gain the trust of those other people. And I think it would have fit if you had Saul's soldiers torturing him because that's very much like the the natural of the rebellion versus the the mechanical of the Empire. And you have Vader using the torture droid, and then you have Saul on the flip side, like using soldiers um, to torture a person. And it's kind of a, a sick twist on the, uh, the whole Ewoks versus the the walkers kind of thing in, in return of the Jedi. Okay. You had me until we started talking about Ewoks, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I think there's, I think there's an aversion in film in general to, especially films that are intended for, for younger audiences to show, um, this is a weird way to put it, but human sentient torturing other human sentience. And here's what I mean by that. Vader tortures Leia by using the droid and they do it behind closed doors and it's all implied. Vader does it again in Empire to Han using the whole board and electrocution thing. But again, you don't see it. You hear it. But you don't actually see anybody hands-on. Now, compare the only person you kind of see it, maybe kind of see it, is Snoke in The Last Jedi where he's kind of invading Rey's mind. And there's still no physical connection. It's much more of a mental attack. If you compare that to something like in... Uh, I'm going to Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is it part one, I think, where Bellatrix Lestrange is literally torturing Hermione. 
had such a traumatic effect, not just on the film, but the actors themselves were very uncomfortable filming that role because of what they had to do to each other. And, and um, actress's name, who's escaping me in every movie uh, with Johnny Bonham Depp Carter. ever. Sure, Ellen her. Yeah. Carter, yeah. A- appeared in interviews saying how absolutely terrifying it was to do that to Hermione's uh, actor because of the way she had to respond. And I think, again, it's kind of, they don't, I don't think there's a lot of comfort showing those kinds of things in, in, in ostensibly kids' movies. But when you take a monster to it, and you can impute that kind of evil and that kind of that kind of danger onto a monster rather than onto a human being. It changes the the level of danger and threat to the actual viewing audience. Does that make sense? Have I lost everybody? No, that makes sense. I just I think you listen. Boar Gullet is a treasure. Okay. Well, I'm just saying t- he has a soul. My problem more mm. with the Boar Gullet thing is a tonal thing, not necessarily a, there's a monster thing. It just fit the scene itself, the way the scene is framed, feels a little out of place. Uh, it just feels a little off. The same way that the Rathars do in uh, TFA. I don't hate that scene. I think it's actually pretty great. Finn and Ray running around is hilarious. And Han, you know, just having no idea what's going on is fantastic. I just think tonally, <laughs> with everything else that's going on, it just felt a little out of place. Yeah. And again, I le- there's not a minute of Rogue One totally that I... Out of place. <laughs> There's not a minute of Rogue One that I don't enjoy, so it was kind of me reaching to find stuff that I could put in the bottom three, to be totally honest oh, with you. That's, I don't the, fun of, that's, the, that's the fun of this exercise, thing. because it forces <laughs> us to evaluate these things critically to say, okay, what really is the problem with this movie, if anything? <laughs> so it's a lot of fun. All right, Drew, we'll take it away for you with your number two then. Okay, well, I'll try not to, to babble on as much and defend things. Um, I think that one of the elements, if we're going to talk about storytelling elements this film does a lot of telling not showing whereas the mantra for film has always been show don't tell you're currently calling yourself liana halleck is that correct possession of unsanctioned weapons forgery of imperial documents aggravated assault escape from custody resisting arrest imagine if the imperial authorities had found out who you really were jim urso and I think there's a number of sequences in this film that fall victim to to breaking that particular rule. And the number one uh, example I can think of is when they rattle off Jin's list of criminal activity, you know, forgery, forging imperial documents, escaping, blah, 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 blah. blah. I don't even know what they say anymore, because at this point it doesn't make a difference. We already saw her in prison. Why do we need to rattle off all of these things that don't play a role in anything later on in the film? She forges imperial documents. Okay, is that a skill she needs at some point in this film? No, she doesn't really do anything like that. So what is the purpose of that sequence other than to tell us she's a bad girl? With, you know, she's a, she's a rude dude with some attitude or something like that. I don't really know because there's, nothing new, there's no new information provided in that line, those snapshots of dialogue that we didn't already get from a visual standpoint earlier. I think there's a couple like that. I'm trying to see if I have my list, which I kind of try to keep track of these kinds of things. Well, I think that um, one in particular, that one moment in particular, is not really about saying she's a criminal. It's more about the rebellion saying, we already know everything about you, so don't, go, don't lie to us. Like, you might as well just be honest <laughs> because we already have it all figured out. Which, 
we, if which you is look already at, proven by the breakdown. They they know who she is. They know her real name, and they know she's connected to Galen Erso, which is not something that is, is as clear cut. Now we as the audience know that, but that's not a publicly known bit of information. The Empire didn't know that. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had her in the prison. They would have executed her. Well, so but, that, that makes a difference in the story. But knowing she forged Imperial documents doesn't tell us anything. Well, but if you look at part of what this movie is doing in the first two thirds is showing the the more grim side of the rebellion, and that's basically like blackmail. I mean, they're basically saying like, "This is all the things you've done wrong. We could easily just turn you over to the Empire." And oops, now you're dead. And kind of thing that that's it that's the feeling that i got from it is more of uh it was a threat than a like hey look she's done all these terrible things because i don't think her committing all these crimes or not committing these crimes has really that much to do with the with the overall story so that's the feel i got from that moment i mean to drew's point i was actually gonna hop in and argue something similar where if we look at this specific example there's definitely things we can point out you know in terms of her forging documents and why they need to say it, stuff like that. But I think the overall point is more that throughout the movie, they were doing this tell, don't show. Um, so Drew, do you have other examples that kind of, we can, uh, use to take down Brandon? Mm. <laughs> I can make some stuff up. If that yeah. <laughs> and I can all say it's true. Drew, I think you, <laughs> there we go. I appreciate that. I think you do really have an interesting point here because I mean, we know from Wabani that Jin's a criminal, right? So do we really need that whole scene where they're like, you forced imperial documents. You did this. You did that. You did that. When it's kind of like, okay, she's a prison- prisoner, and they could basically just explain that scene away with going like, hey, we'll wipe your record clean if you help us with this thing. And yeah, you know, the they could establish it in different ways. I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, because I think the alternative question would be, could they do away with the scene on Wilbani entirely and we lose anything from the film? And I don't think you get anything different other than they broke the, her out of prison. Like, what does that scene do, do for us except for maybe introduce us to K2SO, who gets his own introductions and establishment later on in the film? So I don't really know what that does. Brandon, the way I want you to think about it is by comparison, because I think The Force Awakens does a phenomenal job of the show Don't Tell. I mean, think about how we get introduced to Ray. How do we learn what she does all day? How do we learn about her daily routine? She doesn't say a word for like the first several minutes that she's on screen. We see her in the Star Destroyer. She slides down the sand hill. We see her cleaning the pieces, giving them to the junk dealers. We see her at home in the, the broken ATAT, and not a word of dialogue is exchanged until in <laughs> until BB-8, who can exchange actual dialogue shows up on the scene and that's when she starts you know to talk and i think that really damn i mean think about the think about the one shot the one camera shot where she's scratching another day uh tick mark into the wall and then the camera zips back a little bit and you see how big that wall is and it's full of marks and without a single word we know that number one she has been here for a long dang time but number two she knows she's been here for a long dang time. And that's important character information for her. Now, if we compare that to what we get in Rogue One, we see Jin in prison. So we obviously know she's in trouble. We see her on the tank, you know, fighting her 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 liberators and trying to escape her uh or, you know, the guys who come to break her out of the out of the out of captivity. 
So we know that she has a real problem dealing with authority. She's, you know, she wants to be on her own and do her own thing. She's not interested in, in any cause. But then we get that in verbal dialogue in the very next set of, of scenes. And I, I, that kind of – that's not being really very economical with your running time. Like every scene of every movie should be important and should be consequential to the overall effect of the film. And any time we spend in anything less than critical movement of the story is not worthy of our time. It's really not because we can get so much better. We can get these kinds of stories and the storytelling experiences where every moment is valuable. I think The Last Jedi is really good at this because everything is important to varying degrees. Looking at you, Canto Bite. But those movies have huge chunks of time where everything is important but everything is given time to breathe i know every if you've listened to any time i talk about anything it seems like i'm always talking about time to breathe because of the the lightning fast pacing of some of these films and i think that's really it's smothering the way some of these films can actually live and breathe and then to have a scene like this where we don't get a lot of new information now the rest of the scene on yavin 4 is really interesting it's it's a lot of fun we get to meet the rest of the rebellion cassian gets to ask her his questions and push things forward and that's great but we don't need to spend those precious few moments of reestablishing reestablishing jin's character when they've already done that in a really interesting way so i'm gonna jump in and say that it's possible that the issue wasn't actually in the writing for this. The issue very well may have been in the editing. I know that there was quite a bit left on the cutting room floor. The runtime was really decreased. And just going from what they say in this specific example, you know, for forging documents, blah, blah, blah. What we also know about Jin from Rebel Rising is that she was really, really heavy-handed into the forging documents for Saw. And that's how she really got involved with, the, um, you know, those early dreamers. And so it's possible that maybe the reason why they included this scene was to foreshadow that she was maybe going to forge documents later on for the Rebellion to get them onto Scarif in the first place. That wasn't really well articulated at the very end, and the importance wasn't really necessary because we had Bodhi, we had the pilot, and he was able to get them in anyway. So to me, it could more be an issue with the editing than the writing because maybe the writing meant for it to foreshadow other things, and then in the editing room, when they cut those payoffs out, they forgot to take out the seed as well. Yeah, I think you're right that certainly the editing is – I I think – I don't want to put blame on the editing. I think the editing is what saved this film, honestly, because that sequence in Yavin 4, I mean, even if we go back to Brandon's earlier point about the trailer, Jin has the line of, she says, this is a rebellion, isn't it? I rebel, which takes place in that sequence. It's one of my favorite lines from the trailer, and it didn't even make it into the final cut. And it's because Gareth Edwards had this habit of shooting things that they know are not in the script. They say, let's just try this. Just just start throwing things out there and they take bits and pieces, but without really a cohesive structure that they're sticking to. So I, as much as I enjoyed Gareth Edwards take on this film and like a lot of the stuff that he brought to the table, his method of crafting a story in bits and pieces and just putting it together in the editing room is not super effective in something like this. 
This movie could have been a complete disaster. Very it absolutely easily. could be. And I it mean, almost was. It absolutely almost completely fell apart until they, they hired Tony Gilroy to come in and fix the screenplay for it. Yeah, I mean, Rogue One is an example of kind of like, I think Lucasfilm honestly has learned the lessons after what happened with Solo and with this one. But this kind of method of making movies in kind of this haphazard, crazy way, I don't think is going to work very well for them going forward. <laughs> no, it worked uh, great in like the 1930s. I mean, sure, but that yeah. doesn't st- hold true today. Like, I don't know what was going on. Like, Force Awakens was cast at, with the right amount. You know, the production behind Force Awakens was really spot on. They got all the right people in all the right seats on the bus. That fell apart in Rogue One a bit. Uh, Last Jedi seemed to be under really good control, and, and I think we have Ryan Johnson to thank for that. But then again, like you said, Ash, we go to Solo and with Lord and Miller, who have this completely different vision for what they want to do, and they fire these guys. And they, it, why can't we get these anthology films right? I don't understand. Maybe they will in the future. I don't know. It's it's one of those things where it's like Rogue One to really after I saw Solo, which I mean. I was actually on this podcast talking about Solo, funnily enough, last time I was on here. Um, after Solo, I was like, oh, okay, so they don't really have a plan. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> 100%. This is kind of a disaster, and they lucked out with Rogue One. They just managed yeah, to get I think good in the edit. Um, you might be right about that. Rogue One might be the quintessential failing upward kind of motion. Yeah. They just kind of like cross their fingers and hope for the best. Um, I know you guys like Solo. I really don't, but uh, yeah. Well, but I mean... They are taking a little bit of a hiatus, according to Bob Iger. So I think they're going to kind of try to feel things out with the the TV shows. And and we'll get the Ryan Johnson and Benioff and Weiss stuff and see how that goes. And that may be the end of of, uh, Star Wars movies for a long time. We'll find out. Uh, Lindsay, let's go to you and your number two uh, issue with Rogue One. Yeah, so in the interest of time, I'll try and keep it short. Um, ah. But I should disclose before I say this that I was actually pretty mad at you guys already going into this. Normally, it takes a little while into the discussion before that. <laughs> but um, Rogue One, I, I like it. I've always really liked it. But it just was never towards the top of my list and when I sat down to really dive into it a little bit more, and like Drew said, it's a great exercise to find out exactly what works and exactly what doesn't and why you don't like these movies. And I sat down and I'm trying to articulate why I don't like it that much, and I just couldn't. It's it's really <laughs> a good – it really is a great movie. And, and as to your point, it really is hard to find negative things to say about it. So my number two is absolutely personal. Um, I realize that it is strictly a matter of opinion, but it is truly the only reason why this isn't my number one Star Wars movie because it is so – it really is just a good, good movie. Um, And that's really just – there's no Jedi I, I like Star Wars for the Jedi and for the Force and for that religious and spiritual aspect of it. And yes, I have a Rogue One tattoo, you know, going across my arm. It says, and the Force is with me. Um, what? But, I didn't know about this one. Yeah, yeah. I have that one on my arm. So, so it's hero. weird for me to sit here and say I don't like Rogue One because there's not enough of the Force in it when it's literally plastered on my arm. Um, I have a Rogue One tattoo, too. What do you have? I have hope. 
in Airbush. Well, oh, it's not necessarily oh, Rogue oh. One tattoo, but I got it because of Rogue One. Inspired by, we'll say. Yes. But no, that's that's really my my big flaw with the movie is there just isn't enough of the thing that I really like that makes Star Wars Star Wars for me. I said it from the very first night I saw this movie, and I'll say it again here. It is one of the greatest war movies ever made, but to me it just doesn't feel like a Star Wars movie. It's really interesting that you say that because I think for me the reason it's my favorite is because it doesn't have any Jedi in it. <laughs> That's why when you said that earlier, I was looking at, at my negative points. I was like, it really is just a matter of opinion. And yeah, I know it's a 100% that. I, know it, I can't back it up. It just it, it is what it is. Yeah, everybody's got their Star Wars, and the reason why Star Wars like works for them, for me, it's never been the Jedi. Um, so that's why I think this movie works for me on a really, really so level. That is but, so funny. <laughs> All right, well, jumping off of that, uh, my number two goes to kind of the the somebody who is supposed to be a Jedi, which is Lyra. Um, in, in earlier drafts of the story, I think she was was supposed to be a Padawan uh, or, or maybe just a youngling at the temple um, before she became, you know, just a someone who believed in the Force. But my issue is not that. It's that she was completely misused. misused. Um, I, I agree with having Jin not be of Jedi line, lineage because I think that just comes with too much baggage. Um, but I think if you, if you don't read Catalyst, you don't feel the impact of her death at all at the beginning of the movie, which you you don't get the, oh, Lyra, troublesome as ever line um, there. There's so much malice behind what Krennic is saying there and so many years of, like, her getting in his way. Um, and, and sure, you get, you know, Jin seeing her mom uh, die, but you don't really know how close they are and how much her mom has sacrificed for them to be able to have this family life together, um, how much her, her father, for that matter, has sacrificed. So I felt like Lyra's use in here was a little short. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know yeah, if it's so much a testament to how good Catalyst is and how necessary Catalyst is, um, but it, it definitely is a little bit of a flaw of the movie, for sure. So yeah, uh, I mean, there's not really much to say to that. It, it's also, I think it's also one of those opinion things. Like, we're, you know, Lindsay, you and I are book junkies, so like we want the stuff to be very connected to the book. Um, but then when you kind of step out of that, it's like, because mm. uh, I remember taking my fiance and I was like that that beginning scene, and she was like, yeah, and I'm like, oh, you don't get it. Let me tell you all the things. <laughs> Uh, all right, so I let's say, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, was, okay. I, I was just going to say something on Catalyst. I do view, I'm not necessarily a book junkie, quote unquote, but I do view Catalyst and Rogue One as companion things. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think yeah. they work better together. Uh, definitely. But that's all I wanted to say about that. Well, Lindsay and, and I kind of, L- Lindsay and I have kind of called uh, Rebel Rising, Rogue One, and Catalyst like its own little trilogy because they are mm-hmm. so well connected. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's jump to our number ones. Ash, what is your absolute least favorite thing about this terrible movie that you hate? <laughs> I was going to say uh, Galen Urso. I felt that he was... I Get felt like that relationship... out. No, let me finish. 
<laughs> Galen and Jin are, Jin's relationship, I feel like, could have been a little bit more. I felt it. Like, I really, really felt it. And I cry every time I watch this movie. But I feel like there could have been a little bit more there. Again, I'm really grasping at straws here, guys. Like, I love this movie so much. <laughs> Like, are it's you really, thinking? Are you thinking more in the in the prologue area, or are you thinking more, like, with her on uh, on Edu? It just seems to me on maybe more in the prologue, maybe because it just seems to me it's really like drastic. I mean, he he's just not when you think about it, he's really not in the movie all that much, and then he yeah. just kind of dies. Just more of that relationship. I mean, we. I don't know. I'm probably asking for too much here, but we've never really gotten like a solid parental relationship in Star Wars, really. Well, but I think you're <laughs> that's very true. I think you're onto something there because we get that moment where he says, everything I do, I do it for you. Tell me you understand. And she says she understands. And at first blush, that just sounds like something that a parent would say in a tough situation. Right. Yeah. And so you kind of just like like I didn't even make the connection to the fact that like oh he like sacrificed himself to go you know do take care of the death star so that like somebody else wouldn't be in charge of it and he could sabotage it but I didn't connect it to that line until much later you know and it's obviously supposed to be a direct connection and I think that's just because like the way it's framed and and it's just rushed by because they are in a rush, um, and, and it just feels like something that you would say to the five, six-year-old girl that she is um, to try to keep her strong, and so you kind of forget about it kind of thing. So, yeah, there, yeah, I could see that. I just wish there was more things that made that relationship a little bit more unique, other than, like, he's your dad and he loved her. Yeah. Um, but it does get—I I will say it is incredibly powerful, and it gets me every time I watch that movie— um, and I cry like a little baby every time I watch Galen Erso die. But I just felt like there could have been a little bit more there. Well, and I think if you go to Catalyst too, like that book adds a lot to their relationship because you see oh, yeah, how absolutely. important his work is to to him, and that like once he notices he is hurting Jin um, and, and hurting Lyra, and he just shuts it all down, like cold turkey uh, kind of thing, and and they leave is spoiler alert. Uh, for a book that's really old, uh, but <laughs> like that says a lot like about his character. You know what? Statue limitations, I think, is up on that yeah, one. Yeah, but... I, I think we're good. Mm. You should have read it. Probably not. I'm probably not going to read it anyway. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. All right. Um... I'll, I'll buy it. I'll, I'll purchase it and keep it on my shelf. But there's a real good chance I never. <laughs> 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 All right, Drew, let's go to your bottom number one. Okay. The number one thing that bothers me the most in this entire film is the stupid master switch. I hate that stupid part of this movie. What? It's the worst. No. It's the most side, it is the most side questy moment of the film. It's like, you you mean to tell me a stolen Imperial ship who we saw talk to Imperial ships not but 15 minutes ago can't talk to other ships without being plugged into a landline? Not only is that really dumb, but when they finally get the band of guys around the, the, the bunker door and they're like, that's the master switch over there. How do they know what that is? Like, there's no indication. First off, nobody knew what a master switch was like two minutes beforehand. But now they're like, oh, there it is. I see it. No sign. No writing. 
no, no, nothing. They're like, okay, that's it. It's basically like, go find the plot device. Okay, I'll go find the plot device. Let's plug into the plot device. It's it's very, it is, very not cool and stands out. It is <laughs> a little like, like shining green portal or shining blue portal in the middle of New York City, just a little bit. It's it's just you not. Know? It's not. It's one more step that doesn't need to be there in order to kind of drive up some. It's almost like I don't want to say manufacturer something to do. Exactly. Like Bodhi didn't have anything to do. So like, what can we make him do? Well, let's go make him run. It was cool enough for him to run across the thing and run back and, and plug into the ship, which was kind of dumb. But then to have somebody else have to throw a switch that we don't know how far away it is. We don't know about the geographical relation. So therefore, we don't understand the mechanical relationship between these two things. Why do they have to flip a switch on the east side of a building when they're plugged in on the west side of the building? Is there not a, pl- a switch right there? Where did Bodhi plug into on this side of the building? And why isn't that work out okay? Why do they have to plug it in? Anyway, the more I think about it, the more I'm just like, no, this was not necessary here. I'm always going to love that moment because I love the Master Switch uh, track on the, okay. the soundtrack. It's a good track. It's really good. I, now, I like, obviously, Chirrut, you know, wandering out there into no man's land, but everything Chirrut does is perfect anyway, so it doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with the Switch. That's everything to do with the person, but the, the actual like driving people to the master switch was not cool, and just is like, why? What are we doing, guys? No, and I can get that, and I think there are other ways that you could have Chirrut walking out there to, I don't know, protect somebody or or retreat. He could have gone to go get Bodhi. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. All right, uh, Lindsay, go ahead and and give us yours now. Uh, it's just Felicity Jones. Just what? Oh, yeah. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, it is. What? I got. I don't. I just, I just think she's so freaking annoying in this movie. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're honest. Oh. I am. And the thing is, I liked her before this too. Like, I thought the movie like crazy was absolutely wonderful. And I considered myself a Felicity Jones fan before this. And I don't know if, I don't know. Just the the rest of the cast was so strong and they really got the roles. But she just kind of like whined through this movie. She she was like oh. the male Hayden Christensen. And I love Hayden Christensen. Oh, no. I love Hayden Christensen. I love the prequels. But he really did just whine a lot. And that's how I felt about Felicity Jones doing Jyn Ursa. You know, oh, I think it's a personal. I'm so I think this is a personal preference thing. No, I think Honestly. Lindsay's just wrong on this one. <laughs> I don't think it's personal preference at all. Okay, I was trying to be diplomatic, oh. but okay. No, no, Listen, Lindsay's just wrong. If someone could change my mind, I would love it. I would absolutely love for someone to change my mind on this, so I could enjoy it more. But every single time I watch this and she's on screen, I'm kind of like, oh, her again. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing this. I, I okay. Th- I'll give you this: the one part, the one moment in the film of her acting that I, I find the least entertaining and least enjoyable is when she's in the middle of her listening to her dad's uh, hollow message when she falls to her knees. Just that action is like really. It's too no. much. Hum- humans don't dramatic. behave that way. I can't even. Everything and I- else. Everything else in that sequence is great. And, and, and Ash, that's the sequence I cry at every single time. But until she falls to her knees and then I'm like, girl, no. That, that, that's, <laughs> you can look at her and be like, Gareth Edwards told her to do that. And she was like, 
All right, you the boss. You should. You should. See, and I feel uh, like I never respectfully disagree, but like I see where you're coming from. <laughs> see, I I feel like you need to like take my film degree away from me because it sucks. Because usually when we're talking about writing or the storytelling, I can articulate what it is that I like and don't like. But with her, I'm just like, don't like it. Just just trust me. I don't. I'm not feeling this. Not enjoying. I'm not having fun here. I feel because I have like Aww. this this intense irrational dislike of Natalie Portman, so I kind of feel you there. Wow! Like, I just anything Natalie Portman's in, I'm like immediately like, eh, nah, not for me. Yeah, it's it sucks because I want to like it so badly, and I'm sure Felicity Jones, if you're listening, I'm sure you're a great person, but <laughs> I just I don't want to watch you on my screen anymore. <laughs> Felicity, don't listen to her. You're you're you, you too are a treasure. You're, you're better than Borgullet. You're yeah, I was more just say you're now comparing her to the Borgullet. <laughs> so we'll be taking applications I, for a new co-host soon. I am flabbergasted. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's true. She is She yeah, is my uh, biggest dislike in this movie. Wow. Okay, move on, Brandon. All right. Bring us home. <sighs> I'm going to circle back or around. Or did you go get something to drink? Or is he already home? He's already so, quit. Well, I clearly sent him into a fit of rage. But again, I will say I love the rest of the cast. Yeah, the the ca- rest of the cast is pretty spot on. Um, I have in my notes somewhere that Diego Luna is probably the best part of this film from oh, an absolutely. acting standpoint. So I think good. he's my favorite. He's so good. He's definitely, he definitely gives the best performance in this film. For sure. Yeah, I think so. As he, much as I love Jin Erso, as much as like that character resonates with me in a very deep way. Um, I yeah, Diego Luna's and Alan Tudyk too, because K two yeah, is just yeah. you know let's ooh as I break my chair let's do that while I guess we're waiting for Brandon let's jump I'm into here, kind of what I'm we, here ooh. my mic was on oh mute. there he is Brandon what thanks for joining us yeah sorry <laughs> I I didn't realize I hit mute on Skype but apparently I did because I was all talking and then you guys were being rude it's very inconsiderate. <laughs> <laughs> He's jumping to Felicity Jones's defense. <laughs> and we're like, not today. Not today. <laughs> All right. So my number one is going to circle back around to what we started with, with Drew's number three, which is the choppy feeling of the beginning part of the story. Um, I, it wasn't so much the planet hopping that bothered me, but it was like you just get all of these characters really quickly and except for Cassian, you don't really get any time to understand who these characters are. You're just like, you're here and then you're there and then you're here and then you're there. And, and I feel like if you don't have the proper background knowledge for star Wars and you don't know what's going on at this time period or who these people are, you're kind of like, okay, the death star remind me what that is. Who is saw Guerrera and why should I care about any of this? Um, and, and I think in the end, more than anything, this it, it really destroys uh, Bodhi's story. I feel like it really harms him, and he just ends up being this pilot who has information that for some reason is important, and it's disconnected from everything else. And I think that's a disservice to uh, Riz Ahmed's amazing performance as Bodhi Rook. Uh, but just in general, the whole the whole first, like, from the, the Rogue One uh, logo for the next like 15 20 minutes it's just very very choppy and it's like we were, we were talking earlier about how the editing of this movie probably saved it and this feels like they didn't 
have a plan and so they were just editing together the best stuff that they had and hoping for the best um to get to the to the second act of the film so that was that's my big issue nice nice well we've made it through the bottom three at least well now we are at what we had two hours yet (laughs) uh no we're not not quite we'll we'll get there though longest short podcast on the internet so let's go to our let's go to our top and ash i know You've been wanting to do this part, so let's go ahead and your number three best thing about Rogue One. The scene between uh, Jin and Saw Gerrera, a, a lot, the, they're all Jin based, by the way, just full disclosure. Um, <laughs> I'm Lin- out. Lindsay, yeah, you can just go ahead and sign off. No big deal. <laughs> we'll talk to you later. Gotcha. Um, recast, Nat- recast it as Natalie Portman, and I'm back in. <laughs> <laughs> and Ash's list gets a lot shorter. <laughs> Um, it's the scene between Saw and Jin where um, Saw goes, uh, how can you stand to watch Imperial flags wave? And she goes, it's not a problem if you don't look up. Because oh. that, that was the moment when um, Jin, I'll get very personal here. Jin is the character I think I've related to the most out of any fictional character ever. Because that apathy, that that like not caring about the world around her or how it affects the people around her was something that I was, I was what I was like for a really long time. And I decided I wasn't going to be that person anymore. And it was really weird because I was getting very active in like uh, social justice, political spaces right as that movie was coming out. (laughs) So it really was like, kind of like putting a mirror up to me and going, Hey, this used to be you. You don't want to do that. Um, and I just love that scene so much because it just it shows a different side of Star Wars that we hadn't seen before. A character who doesn't care about the Empire. I mean, she cares about the Empire, but she she's like, it's not a problem if you don't look up. It doesn't bother me. So why should I care? You know, Ash, this line was actually my number three um, on my positive side as well. Because I think it sums up the theme so well when they keep talking about, you know, we have hope, rebellions are built on hope, and we're hopeful for this. It's not just about going against the bad guys, you know, and going up against what's evil. It's making everyone else understand what they're fighting for, and they're hopeful that they can make everyone else sympathize and empathize with them and their point and join their cause. So that was a, this is definitely one of my favorite lines. I think it's really well written and just a beautiful way to put it. Um, and I, it's certainly something I could relate to as well. So this was definitely my number three. Yeah. I just think to start the movie that way and see where it goes at the end with Jin willing to sacrifice herself for the rebellion for this thing that she just didn't believe in, in the beginning, I think is so, so powerful and resonated with me so much. Um, excuse me. And yeah, I just, that, that line is so great. And it, and it kind of shows like how jaded, uh, Jin would naturally become growing up with somebody like Saw Gerrera, who was all about the cause. That's all he had. Um, and yeah, I just, that, Kits me every time. I love that scene. Mm. Nice job. It's it is very <laughs> powerful. Scene. It's it's one of those things like it's it's hard to even encompass the amount of emotion that's in that moment because it kind of I feel like it kind of touches on the deepest like emotional wounds that we have um, because those tend to be centered around you know family or people who were important to us like Saul was for for Jin, um, or it's something even more personal, like introspective, like you were talking about, Ash. Um, I think that scene just really 
cuts to the core of what it means to be human and what it means to have these relationships and, and stuff. So yeah, definitely a powerful scene. All right, Drew, what do you got? Number three. Um, I'm going to kind of piggyback off of that in a, in a similar sentiment. Um, I'm going to go with Bay's rediscovering his connection to his spirituality at the end of the film. Mm, yes. Um, it, when he, when Sherrod dies, spoilers, um, and he kind of, he, he picks up his creed. It literally, it's like a, a, an almost literal handoff as, as Sherrod dies with it on his lips and Bay's picks it up. And he stands up, a, a newly resolved person, um, and he's, he, he brings that creed out and he cocks his gun to it. And it's just a, it's a very, very emotional moment. Um, kind of like, Ash, like what you were saying about how Jin is demonstration of, of a person coming out of an apathy from a political and, and, and sense of justice in the, in the galaxy, um, personality and perspective. I think Bayes represents that on a spiritual level where, you know, I, I think... A, a lot of people are probably raised in, in spiritual environments, but they don't buy into it. I think that's pretty common, um, especially like little kids who go to church or whatever, you know, are usually there because their parents bring them. And uh, far too many times uh, kids who, who grow up in church will walk away from it as soon as they don't have to go. Like as soon as they can make their own decision not to go, they won't. Um, a real statistic, I know we talked about made up statistics earlier, but 90% of kids who grow up in church don't attend after they turn 18. And I think Bayes is kind of the the story version of that, where a person who walks away from it because, you know, Sherrod makes a comment, says Bayes Malbus, who used to be the most devoted of all the Guardians of the Wills, you know, something equivalent to that. But he's given up because he's seen that what he was taught doesn't line up with what he sees in the real world. Um, I think this kind of ties into a little bit of the Qui-Gon story in the Master and Apprentice book, where, you know, Qui-Gon says the same kind of thing. It's like if our tenants that we are taught conflict with the reality in front of our eyes which one is wrong and but at the end Baze is able to reconcile those things finally in his heart and in his soul and he uses that to rediscover um what that connection was and that connection was more than just to more than just a personal one it was it kind of connected him to other people and by doing that it gave him the strength to kind of continue on even though he doesn't continue very long he's able to give his life now for not just killing other people but also for saving saving those he cares about and i think that's an incredible journey and the two of those guys Baze and Sherrod, don't get a lot of screen time i would have been perfectly fine if they were the stars of this film and we just got their story for two and a half hours um that's definitely it, something i would be interested in to watch <laughs> but it says a lot that Sherrod and Baze really stole the show of rogue one you know yeah. people were like i'm one with the force and the force is with me I mean, constantly after that movie came out and the fact that they don't get a whole lot of screen time, I mean, really is a testament to not only the actors, but the writing and everything involved in that. And yeah, they, I think, are the, the strongest. So sense. Oh, it's amazing. I think those two guys are, are, I mean, the whole film is all kind of about that discovering what it is that you're willing to give your life for. That's a lot of what this film is about. Like, what are you, you know, if we're going to go think about Hamilton, it's like, if you stand for nothing, what do you fall for? So that's kind of, and these guys demonstrate that on 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 that spiritual religious level. That is always very interesting to me. And and to kind of go back to what we were talking about, like twenty minutes or so ago, I don't know where I fall on the. There's no Jedi in the story because I think Chirrut is as Jedi as we get, and I think that's an okay thing. He we talk about Qui Gon 
Jin as the as the penultimate Jedi, but I think it's I think it's Chirrut. I think he is the one that the Jedi Order should have been based around instead. He's my hero, that man. <laughs> I mean, I can't argue with that. I I mean, I still say I'm one with the Force, and the Force is with me. Like, it, it's a very both of those characters are very powerful. Um, and yeah, I, I guess you almost forget that they don't get a lot of screen time because every time they're on screen, it's impactful, you know? And it, yeah. and it says a lot. It, it goes back to that show, Don't Tell, that you were talking about. So. And Baze calls Jin the little sister, and it's the most adorable little thing in the entire film. He adopts her, and it's great. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. <laughs> All right, I'm done with my three. These Go are ahead. my new dads, Baze and Jin. <laughs> <laughs> totally okay with that. All right, Lindsay, you want to go? Yeah, well, my three was um, really the same as Ash's. That one line is not a problem if you don't look up. Just for, one, the way I connected to it, and two, the way I think it brings out the real fight in the story. I dig it. So now we can get to the real deep stuff, which is my number three. You guys ready for this? This is very heavy. You might want to just say it. It's Borgullet. Say it's (laughs) Borgullet. I say it. <laughs> it's not. It's not Borgullet. Uh, this is like literally the most Brandon answer ever. It's the martial arts influence that's in the film. Uh, oh, how did we not see that coming? Right? Like the, I mean, you got Donnie Yen in there, which is one thing. That whole fight scene is fantastic. Uh, Put Donnie Yen in everything. Please. I mean, please. Yeah. Just, just have Donnie Yen do every role in Rogue One and re-release it. And I'm there for it. <laughs> But also, like, having Jin with her batons, uh, you know, hitting the bucket heads and everything. I love it. That's it. It's awesome. (laughs) So hard to It's real good. It's real good. (laughs) It's real good. Uh, All right. So let's go to our number two. So, Ash, what's your number two uh, favorite thing about this movie? Is it Jin? I will open this up. Actually, they're not all gin related because I <laughs> forgot about this and I'm adding this in retroactively. Um, it, there was a moment in Rogue One that made me, I think, more happy than I've ever been in a movie. Uh, and Brandon kind of teased it earlier. I'm a huge, huge Rebels fan, so you might know where this is going. But the moment I heard oh, I General Sindula, no. please come. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I felt bad for the guy sitting next to me because I started punching the armrest of my chair. I was so excited, and my sister was sitting. And at this point, she hadn't seen Rebels yet. Uh, my sister was like, "What? Why is that? What's going on? Why is this important?" <laughs> and I somehow managed to completely forget about this. But um, yeah, that moment, I just because it felt to me like Rogue One more than any other movie. It felt to me like this Star Wars animation stuff that I had loved so much and cared so much about was finally being treated like quote unquote real Star Wars, you know? Yeah. Mm. It was like, it really is connected. Oh my gosh. And then they said Hera's name and I, and and then choppers in the background. And that's kind of a double chopper and Hera really is one kind of thing. Um, when you have yeah, the ghost later on in the, yeah. And the ghost. Yeah. Having all of that yeah, stuff in there just made me so happy. So I was like, oh, my gosh, they're taking it's like real Star Wars now. Not that it wasn't real Star Wars before, but I mean, you know what I mean? It it wasn't treated the same way as like a Star Wars movie. Well, and I think like in here, well, one, this made me very grateful for podcasts because most of those things I didn't catch on first viewing um, because I was just so focused on what was happening, like on the main part of the screen that I didn't even see Chopper. I didn't hear them call for Hera. So when I 
when other people brought that up and I was able to go back and listen to it, it was really cool. But I think also something that this movie did was, like you said, it, it made animation feel like it was important. But even more than that, it gave us hope for what this new canon idea could be where mm-hmm. everything could cross over, right? Because you have hair getting mentioned in... Uh, the movie, and then I was just reading one of the Star Wars ongoings, like one of the volume seven or eight or something like that, and Luke is talking directly about, uh, you know, going to talk to Hera or something of that nature. Um, and so, or, or General Hera's training drills or something like that. So, yeah, I, I think that was, I mean, it's a, it's for Rebels fans, Ash, like you and me, I think it's just one of those like, ooh, yay, kind of things. But also on like an even deeper level, I think it it said to fandom like, hey, this actually is all one big story. So when you get to moments like like Maul and Solo, it's like, okay, yes, that's super cool and that's a big deal. But don't forget, like it probably wouldn't have happened if it didn't get a good reception in Rogue One to have those little mentions. You oh know? yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, nice. It's pretty cool. Nice. Pretty cool. All right, Drew, what you got? Uh, the space battle in Act Three. Um, wow! Everything about oh, this yes. is perfect. What a shocker! It's, it's all perfect. It's phenomenal. Um, we get red. Red leader is back. Gold squadron is back. My top, my my lovely little Y wings get their uh, get their moment in the Dutch sun. Vander. So much fun. Oh, Dutch is a man. Okay, let's be clear. I'm a little. I think there are a couple times we 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 get a little cheated. We don't get Tyree and we don't get Wedge. I think if we got those two guys back on screen, I would have like peed myself in the middle of the theater. It would have been very awkward, but it would totally have been worth it. Um, I loved Radis and his ship. I loved when they brought up the Hammerhead Corvette and dropped the disabled Star Destroyer into the other one who subsequently falls into the planet shield generator. It's all so good. There's so many TIE fighters. That space battle is the best out of all of the Star Wars movies. It's the best space battle there possibly is. Absolutely. Nothing is better. It's better than Return of the Jedi. It's better than A New Hope. It's better than anything else they've ever put out. I could watch that, like a, a cut of just the space battle portion on a loop for hours and be perfectly content. Admiral Reddish of the Rebel Alliance. All squadron leaders reporting. Admiral, this is Blue Leader standing by. This is Gold Leader standing by. This is Red Leader standing by. Those are rebel ships. Get Admiral Gore. 100% agree with you, especially because on top of everything else, how it just looks cool, the stakes are so high. Yeah. You, you, you really feel how feel important it, yeah. everything and like how chaotic it is and, and people are scared and they're kind of they're kind of yelling back and forth. And no one, and this is like the first I think this is the first major battle of the rebellion. Um, cause I think the crawl and a new hope says that they, this, they scored their first victory against the empire, something to that effect. So this is the first time that everybody is out there and the empire has only got two or three star destroyers. And then you've got, you know, Vader jumps in with the death squadron and it's just terrible at the end for those guys. And, and they're crashing into the devastator and it's, oh, it tickled every piece of my heart. It was perfect. Well, and hammer we get to see Red 5 blow up. Red 5 blows up, which makes perfect sense because Luke had to have a, a call sign to slide into. And we we're like, why is he number five? Why isn't he number 12? Why did people just kind of bump up a, a row? It's well, it's because five blew up. <laughs> I love it. I, I also, will. No, Ash, go for it. Oh, sorry. I was going to say the, the moment the hammerhead rams those two Star Destroyers. 
I don't think I've ever screamed as loud in a movie theater, and I felt very bad for the people sitting next to me because I just remember going, oh, my God. So So good. So good. We do have to give, though, credit. It wasn't the first major space battle. Granted, this started out as a major retreat, but in Rebels, um, the two episodes, Zero Hour. Oh yeah, definitely had a great space scene, um, space battle as well. So we got to well, give credit to Harrison Duel there. Zero hour or is some of the best forty minutes of television. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I'll I'll look forward to it. Uh, well, because even the ghost is in the end here of Rogue One, which I thought was really cool too. Which I can't say who is in the ship because no. Drew hasn't watched season four yet but Lindsay and ash you know who was in the ship oh we sure do at the end we sure do could have been in the ship i'm just saying i'm just saying you guys get me you know what's funny is like when the when the one star destroyer crashes into the other one and it it starts to like scrape across it it looks like legos to me i can't unsee that like i saw it and i was like huh I wonder if they did that with Lego pieces, and now every time that one, just that one moment <laughs> takes me out. It's my fault. It's not the movie's fault, but it's great. It is great. It's neat to see all of those those ships in kind of the high definition of yeah. like modern technology, as compared to like the thirty five millimeter kit bashing kind of models that were used for the the classic trilogy ships. To see them brightly lit, you know, everything is sharp and 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 looks really good. Um, in that digital, that that cr- that creation, that craftsmanship, it looks so good. And it, this the scope of it, you have so many rebel ships, you have so many different rebel ships, and then you have thousands of Tie Fighters as they just pour out of the space station. Ah, oh, I could go on and on and on about just these these fifteen. Min- I don't even think it's fifteen minutes worth of that action that you actually get in space, but it's so worth it. Well, and every right, I gotta every, stop, or we're gonna be here till like Tuesday. <laughs> every moment is effective. Every moment is is purposeful. So. Yeah, right with you. All right, Lindsay, please take it out of Drew's hands. All right, my number two, I'm going to have to combine two things here. Um, But they do go hand in hand. It is K2SO and the humor in this movie. I think, oddly enough, this is probably the funniest Star Wars movie that we have. And the humor lands really well. And it's so appropriately timed. They're not misusing it. They're not trying to make a joke out of any really serious moment. It's just, you know, Alan Tudyk really carried this. Even Donnie Yen had his great moments. Just it's, it's overall like, I I know everyone dies, but it's still funny. (laughs) 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 Yes. Mass murder. It is. (laughs) It's a fine, fine line, but they get it. Well, and it's, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. I mean, a lot of credit goes to to like Alan Tudyk, and and I think that's what I'm more excited for about the Cassian show. I think if they had said K two was coming back, but somebody else was playing him, I would have been like, mm, I, I don't know if I can support this. But oh, he he is so good in this. There's not a line that K two S O says that's not just per- perfect, perfectly delivered, I... perfectly stated. My per- my personal favorite is I won't die in space. <laughs> I love it's like everybody's thinking Max Cassian. Yes, that one's great. The hacking handsome. Oh, prisoners. 
to prison. <laughs> to prison. I like the going to imprison them. Imprison. Even Johnny Yen when he does seriously, I'm blind. <laughs> oh man, it's so good. So good. The force protected me. I protected, I protected you. you. <laughs> I protected you. It's like the most quotable Star Wars movie. It's so funny. You almost shot me. <laughs> Did you know that wasn't me? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Everything everything K2SO says is pretty perfect. It really is. It really Amazing. is. I'll be there for you. The captain yes. said I had to. I had to. <laughs> We could just have a whole podcast episode of just reciting K2SO lines. Easily. <laughs> There's an idea for you. All right. All right, Brandon, hit us with your number two. Okay, so this one, I actually did go a little bit deeper. Uh, it's found family for me. Uh, in Rebels, this is a, a really important theme, and it's part of the reason why this, the story of Rebels means so much to me, and I think it's why, one of the, uh, why Rogue One connected with me so much. I think... There definitely are some shortcomings uh, with some of the character development, particularly in those first few moments that I talked about. But in general, all the characters I really connected with, and you felt the bond that was uh, that was there with them, um, and, and that even though they were in this dire situation, like they were going to stick together. And there's three three moments in particular uh, that I wrote down that stick out to me. One is Cassian saying, "Welcome home." Uh, to Jin when she spent the last like 20, 15, 20 years just trying to fit in and get by so that nobody notices her. And now she's finally able to do a little more than surviving. And I remember when, when I first saw that in the theater, I was like, did he, did he just say welcome home? And it was kind of weird. And then I like after the movie kind of thinking on it, I was like, Oh yeah. Like that's a, that's a very good line. Uh, the other one, which drew already mentioned is Baze's little sister, uh, moment. Um, because we, we see, I think that more than anything shows us that these characters aren't fighting for the rebellion or to stop the empire, but they're fighting for each other. Um, and, and in, if you go to rebel rising, that's something that Jin does. She doesn't really care about the rebellion or the empire, she cares about about people, um, and so that was really powerful. And then finally is the the scene between Cassian and Jin in the elevator, um, because I think in like literally every other story you get them kissing um, either there or on the beach or something. But the fact that they never went uh, the romantic route was a lot more powerful because it's not like this boy meets girl love story, um, which. If you ship it, like that's that's totally fine. Um, if, if you want to look at it through that lens, but for me personally, just the fact that they have the bond of, I mean, almost brother sister type, like nothing's going to tear them apart, um, except for a Death Star uh, kind of bond uh, is really powerful to me. So, found family is is a big theme in Star Wars, but in this movie, I think it's a, a strong undertone. Drew, let's go to you. What's your number one? This is not sequence specific, but overall for the film, Rogue One, I think, heralds in a new era of some real creativity um, options in the film 
universe here for Star Wars movies. I think it introduces a lot of new storytelling devices that were not commonly used from any of the other films to this point. We have a lot more handheld camera shots, which give us a lot more uh, feeling of being in the moment. We're kind of in the character spot. We feel with them. We kind of shake and jostle around with them as they go through um, uh, tough things. Uh, We have on-screen title cards. Like, we have planet monikers and descriptions. Mm -hmm. Like, the planet Edu, when we were first introduced to it, is described as a kyber refining uh, system or kyber refining plant or something. So we're actually given the name of a planet and its subtitle on the screen, which is kind of interesting. Like, imagine if we had gotten that in something like Return of the Jedi when they go to Endor. They could have put the name Endor and then under it, Sanctuary Moon. That would have been pretty cool. So I like that um, of the issues that Gareth Edwards kind of we, we talked about some of the issues that Edwards as a director may have encountered on this production. But I think there are a lot of really good things that that were done in this film that are going to help pave the way and did help pave the way for some other things. And here's one of my prime example is um, towards the end when the disabled Star Destroyer crashes into the legit Star Destroyer and is dropped into the shield generator. The sound effects drop out and the music swells in, but it's not a very strong, evocative piece of music. It's very laid back, strings, kind of calm and quiet in order to juxtapose against the calamity that is actually occurring. And that comparison draws out how important and big a deal the actual moment is similar to how the Death Star arrives uh, in orbit. They say something massive is coming out of hyperspace, and it's quiet. And you have this moment of like clarity where everybody's on the same page of, oh, snap, we're in trouble. I think if we didn't have that kind of sequence in Rogue One, we would not have gotten something in The Last Jedi like the Holdo maneuver, where when she hits the uh, hyperspace switch and blasts into Snoke's ship... And the sound drops out, but you see the action moving, and you can hear people in the audience kind of gasping and going, what's happening? This is new and interesting. That moment is kind of a successor to the groundwork laid in Rogue One. And I think there's moments in Rogue One that have have set the foundation for other things to come. Like, think about how, how personal the battle on Jeddah is. Like when they're fighting in the street sequences, Jin runs out and grabs the little girl and, and basically tuck and rolls across the, the whole sequence to deliver her to her the child's parent. Like that's kind of set up some interesting some interesting interactions in combat and the importance of face-to-face interactions in something like Rise of Skywalker. We've already seen it in the trailer where Kylo Ren basically grabs a guy by the face and smashes him into the ground. That kind that that doesn't exist in the rest of the Star Wars um, language, in the film language, and 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 a lot of that I think is going to be traced back to all of the chances they took on Rogue One. Not everything was perfect, not everything was great, but they took so many risks, and I think a lot of them are going to pay off, and a lot of them have pay off, paid off, and we're going to be reaping the benefits of this one for years. So basically, to come. what Drew is saying is he really liked the whole movie. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you're not wrong. I mean, I I haven't gone back to rewatch all of the films because there's like 17 of them now or something like that. But And I haven't watched Empire Strikes Back in a long time. It's probably been a couple of years because you know, I feel like I know that movie inside and out. When we get to rewatching that one, it's going to be very interesting how that one has aged 
and how, you know, coming at it from a very different perspective in life. Empire has always been my favorite for years. Rogue One is well, giving it a run for its yeah. money, though. It is right up there with Force Awakens and Empire Strikes I'm Back. I'm with you there, the and, and funnily Wars enough, out. my number one is the risks that they took with the story and the execution of those risks. I didn't really think so much about some of the points that you uh, were looking at, but like the, the Tarkin uh, and Leia situation, I thought... I know some people had some problems with it, uh, with the Uncanny Valley, but for me, I thought it was very effective. I think allowing all these characters to be killed at the end was a a huge idea. And, you know, something I always talk about on Don't Burn the Sacred Text is, like, even if I don't like every book that they're putting out, I appreciate the fact that they're putting out a lot of different styles of books and a lot of different... Um, takes on the Star Wars galaxy where just for me personally a lot of the expanded universe novels that I've read tend to feel the same Brandon actually also mentioned briefly my number one and that was just the brave bold move of Disney killing off every single character and then even having Darth Vader come in for the phenomenal clean sweep but the entire time I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, it's Disney. We're going to get at least one or two people surviving. There's going to be some glimmer of a happy ending. And the whole time then it's just like, oh, there goes another. There goes another. <laughs> there goes two more. There goes another. And then finally it's like, wait, there's no. they just killed everyone. <laughs> they just, And I, I love it. And I think it was such a brave move because you, you don't expect it from Disney. And I have to say that that shock, you know, obviously it was absolutely heartbreaking. Some deaths we really felt more than others. Um, but but just the the braveness of going ahead and cutting every single person we grew attached to off. Um, I thought it was a really cool move. Yeah, it really drives home like that. Yeah. That sacrifice message to say, hey, look, this is a war movie. It says it right in the title. And that you need to know that these things have costs, and that is not something we would have gotten. And I think any the, of the other Star Wars like, shows. we were all going in there thinking, like, okay, are they all going to die? Like, are these like background characters during the original trilogy that we just didn't know about yet? But once you see K two die, and they make it very clear, like he's dead. Like it's a it's a death shot there. It's not just like oh no yeah. he's disabled like three PO gets you know it it's straight up he's dead. That was the moment I stopped and I went oh they're gonna kill all of them. Yeah. Yeah. K two was the first one where I was like oh yeah and I knew they were all dead going in but I somehow forgot because I got mm-hmm. spoiled because someone was a jerk. Um, yeah. Somebody said well it, they weren't intentionally being a jerk. They live in the UK so they saw the movie before me and sent me a text that said I really liked Rogue One. It's a shame they all died though, right? Uh, like they were just clueless. Uh, oh. Yeah, yeah. See, this is why you don't have friends. That kind of thing doesn't happen to yeah. me, okay? Great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but even then I was like, yeah. "Oh, it's getting real." Okay. Yeah, all right. It was it was a heck of a way to end the movie and I remember Gareth Edwards like had written an ending where somebody survived. I don't know if he ever actually said who survived, but then he presented the idea to Kathleen Kennedy of of doing it where they kill everybody. And she's like, well, yes, of course, that makes the most sense for the story. Um, and and that, was, that was a big thing. Yep. 
I, I never doubted Kathleen Kennedy because like look at her resume. But in terms of like handling Star Wars, I was just like that was that was a big check. Like yes, yes, you're willing to to do what needs yeah. to be done to tell these these new stories and go in these new directions. That's going to keep Star Wars alive for the next uh, many generations. All right, Ash, what's your number one? Oh, it's Jin's speech. It's it's one hundred percent Jin's speech. It is. Not only wow. my favorite moment in Rogue One, it might be my favorite moment in Star Wars ever. Wow. Um, oh, that's I, high praise. Because it kind of like goes back to my number three. The co- the sharp contrast between Jin at the beginning of the movie and Jin at the end is amazing to me. And it like it really Jin as a character really resonates with me. And that scene was like for me personally, like this very impactful moment that had like a positive impact on my own life in a weird way. So I'm obviously a little biased here. But her just standing there and saying, you know, what when the guy goes, what chance do we have? And she's like, what chance do we have? What choice? You know, if you let this happen, you are what are you even doing? You're you know, it's back to the Hamilton thing. If you stand for nothing, what do you fall for? Um, And then she says, you know, Cassian's line back to uh, back to him. Basically, rebellions are built on hope. Real, and you see just how much Jin has changed and how much her arc has been, you know, developed throughout the movie. Um, a very close second is the scene right after that where she's talking to Cassian and she's like, I've never had people That's who stick around moment. this long and Cassian goes, welcome home. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just love Jin so much and I love that character. And I, and that scene is kind of like the epitome of her finally believing in something, finally looking up, you know, um, can't argue yes. with that. Yeah. Can't argue with so that. Good. It's so good. So that's going to bring uh, a close to our Rogue One discussion for now. Uh, the movie tends to come up quite a bit, uh, so of course we'll we'll continue to talk about <laughs> it. But we're jumping into the original trilogy next. I'm kind of excited because I have no idea what's going to be on my list for A New Hope, which will be our next episode. Yeah. This is going to be tough because I don't feel I feel like the classic trilogy, even though it's what started all of this nonsense, doesn't get discussed as much anymore. So this is going to be interesting to kind of see what it's like with. So I think a lot of us are going to come with some fresh eyes to it. Does anybody have any other honorable mentions for Rogue One stuff that was fun? They wanted to mention, but didn't get a chance to put it on their list anywhere. I'd say Vader's castle. Definitely a highlight. I think it's something we're going to continue to come back to in stories to come i won't predict exactly which ones obviously invader immortal will get it um but i think it's it's a topic that we're not going to drop anytime soon so it was a cool yeah. way to introduce it nice just nice. being on mustafar man like or mustafar i still don't know how you pronounce which, that another planet that did not get a name like a a, a title card it was the only one get a, a thing that said this right. is mustafar that and hmm. skitting up uh, and the opening planet. Play yeah, back the opening planet. The opening yeah. planet for for yeah. So yeah. you read Catalyst. You would. Uh, is that what it's called? Ah, okay. F- fake ah. fan. Fake fan. Well, <laughs> I, I I can't read, so that's okay. Um, the the moment where on Edu when Bodhi is actually flying the new the stolen transport and shoots the stormtroopers to get so that uh, oh, Cassian yeah. and Jin have a chance to escape. K two says, "Well done. You're a rebel now." Really. That really mm-hmm. stood out to me. Like, imagine what that would have taken, like, on Bodhi's part to like kill people he used to serve with. Because if he was a, he could have known him. He could have known that. Like, like, he flew in and out of that 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 port, not 
a few times. Like this was his job. He's a cargo pilot, so he would shuttle in and on and off of Edo on a regular basis, it seems. And so that's a pretty big leap to take. And I, and I feel like that moment kind of got glazed over a little bit. But I, it really stood out this time of like, what does it take, and what does it feel like to turn your back on what you had trained for and what your life was built around and to, and move into something unknown. I feel like this movie has the biggest so right. conglomeration cool of important scary. themes How scary. out of maybe any of the Star Wars movies. You know, like, they deal, Star Wars deals with some heavy themes of, like, redemption and faith and morality and, and those kind of things, but, like, this has all of that plus, like, all these other small themes that are going on around it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like yeah. a lot of the other movies deal with those things in a, in a way that's fun and entertaining. And Rogue One is not afraid to take it on a little bit more seriously and say that your decisions have have consequences to them. And a lot of these guys, their decisions have um, fatalities attached to them. I can't remember who said this, but somebody said that Rogue One is about people fighting for a future that they never get to see. And that oh. kind of somber tone permeates the whole thing so while there is all these messages but at the end of the day it's so hopeful right because we know what happens luke takes the shot they destroy the death star Mm -hmm. um and that was one of the things that resonated with me the most that's why i got a tat like hope and arabesh tattooed on my arm that's a really good point Um, because like the rebellion in the original trilogy they always had the feeling of like yeah we're gonna live through this like maybe it's just because we we watch it with so much knowledge now but i don't think there's ever a point in the original trilogy where luke has moment until maybe until the second death star where he doesn't think he's getting out of this whole thing alive and you you get that feeling a lot more in in Mm, rogue one wow like i I don't think there's a single rebel that didn't know they were going to die on scarif well yeah because i think yeah i think it was it's a it's a tonal thing Right. Like Rogue One realizes how serious the stakes are. Star Wars is, you know, and I love Star Wars for this. Star Wars is like, yippee, we're going to go fight the Death Star. You know, like <laughs> that's that's kind of the tone going into the Battle of Yavin. Yeah. It's um, just like Beggar's Canyon back home. Luke is exactly. still playing. He's still he used having to shoot a good time. Rats in my T-16. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the Womp Rats didn't have a super laser on the other end fighting back. You don't and know also, that. And also it does lots of things oh, like yeah. showing the destruction of Jetta from the ground level. Instead of like seeing it from a distance, like Alderaan, we have an emotional connection to Jetta because people they were well, on the ground. The novelization, you know, yeah. simple things the like that. Novelization like kinda, actually takes you. You there realize it's a lot more serious. While I, I think Lindsay, correct me if I'm wrong. I it I think it shows you the the parents of that little girl that Jin saves as the planet blows up, and you're like, oh my god! Like yeah, Jin risked her life to save this little girl yep. who didn't even get to live but for a few more hours you know and and it's it's stuff like that um Mm. and and that's not just in the novelization that's what makes it so great like the novelization just picks up on what the movie is already doing and, and just takes it to another level um but the movie itself is just i don't care if it was the editing or the writing or the acting to me it was executed perfectly by this point, if you've listened to this, you should have just gone and watched Rogue One because <laughs> it would have definitely been faster. Um, but, <laughs> of course, you faster. can enter our Rogue One contest uh, to win that Krennic Pop Vinyl. Just uh, leave the rating and review and let me know. Um, Ash, you want to go ahead and, and plug all your great podcasts and everything you're doing? 
So yeah, so I have uh, a Star Wars podcast called the Skyhoppers Podcast, um, which you can find at butwhythoughpodcast.com. Um, and it's just a general Star Wars discussion show where we talk about, you know, literally everything. Uh, as of recording this episode, last week's episode, we just did a deep dive into Wikipedia, and we talked about Leku for like 15 minutes. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> that's that's where I'm at right now. Like I'm on the unidentified, unidentified Tatooine moisture, moisture farm part. <laughs> um, yeah. So so, and then I also do uh, also on but why though I do a uh, we're doing a mini Game of Thrones uh, podcast right now called the Competition of Chairs, which is a comedy focused Game of Thrones show where myself, who's seen all of Game of Thrones and loves Game of Thrones, watches uh, the last season of Game of Thrones with the person who has only ever seen the pilot before watching season eight. Oh no! And she guesses <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, and that's all. But whatthepodcast.com. I also do some writing for them uh, as well, have, uh, and all manner of pop on? culture related things. Okay. Uh, no, no, we uh, stopped doing Safari right, Zone a couple so of months ago. Lindsay, but yeah, Drew, somebody take it away. I'll take it. You guys can find me on Twitter at Miss Lindsay G. M S Lindsay G. Or on Instagram at Full Force Lindsay. I do a lot of, um, you know, fitness and Star Wars mix, a little Jedi training, if you will. Um, and then, of course, you can find me here on I the enjoy. Clashing Sabers Network. Okay. Um, I am on the Twitters at The Drew Brett. That's probably where I do the most silliness. Um, you can find us also in the Facebook group, the Clashing Sabers Star Wars Community Group on Facebook. It's a lot of fun where we post. Um, it's a, it's a pretty good place where other, you can actually share the things that you are doing and what you are putting out there. And if you want a space to uh, have an audience come in and share what you do, uh, people share articles that they write or podcasts that they put on or or, or appear on and um, do that. We want to know what you guys um, think and want to contribute because that helps give us ideas and things We that help spur conversations to talk about things. Um, it's a great place to make fun of Brandon all the time because he's not always in there. Um, and he doesn't know all the things that happen sometimes, and that's a lot of fun. Um, but otherwise, I'm here, me and Brandon, making fun of things, and uh, we're trucking five. through. We have how many movies left do we have? So we have four, five, six, seven, five, right? Yeah, eight, five and more, and then and then our is that it? Five right speculation. now. Man, and this is May. It'll be pretty it, close. Well, by the time yeah. we get there, it'll be time to watch episode nine, won't it? Wow. Yeah. Hey, it's like you planned this in advance or something. You're good at this game. <laughs> and before we kick it over to Brandon, the last thing I want to say about Rogue One is this. During the chariot fight, when he's beating up all the stormtroopers, there's a part where he kicks sand in the stormtrooper's <laughs> face, and the stormtrooper flinches. But he's wearing a helmet. <laughs> oh. Just think about that. It's either it's either really good acting or it's really good martial really arts, and he actually and kicked decide. the sand up into... Yep, yep, that, that's, that's how hard his he helmet? kicked He yeah, kicked he it kicked so hard. <laughs> you know what? I wasn't listening for the glass shattering you sound see, of, that's his eye, of his eye goggles exploding, but I'll go back and rewatch it tonight. Brandon, maybe it's a uh, little yep. uh, Dooku Jedi lost with some floating sands. Hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Spoiler not alerts. Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> hey, look, if you, I'm not gonna if lie, you guys can figure out what I that means. I have to figure out what that means. So. 
blonde bangs. Not all the way, but yes, I probably I I think <laughs> I know what part you're talking about. But I'm bad with audio. That's why I don't do audiobooks unless I've ar- ar- actually read them. So I need to like go. Re- I'm also trying to finish it quickly because Steve challenged me to see who could finish it first, and I want to finish it before him because I'm competitive in an unhealthy way. Listen to it. At, barely listen to. Are it you listening to it at like one times one point three speed or something? Oh come on! I'm not that smart. You get times six speed, man. <laughs> <laughs> listen to all of Jedi Lost in forty five minutes. Oh. <laughs> so speaking of making fun of Brandon, um, challenge accepted. Yeah, that's happening on the Facebook group. All right. uh, Clashing Sabers at, uh, at Clashing Sabers on Twitter. Clashing Sabers Network at gmail.com. We are also on YouTube. Right now, we've just got the podcast episodes up there, um, but we're going to start getting some more content out there now. Uh, and then, of course, go support the Saber Martial Arts Foundation. Uh, they have a, well, once this comes out, the May the 4th tournament will already be over, and that'll be up on uh, Sable Martial, Saber Martial Arts Foundation uh, YouTube and also probably San Diego Sabers. So go check them out. And until next time, Batch 8. Wanna... Oh, I was going to ask I if you wanted it. to do it with me. But I you jumped it. in there. All right. One, two, three. Hi, ho. The podcast you just listened to and all other Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of ClashingSabers.net. All sounds and materials used from other creators is their stuff, and we just use information on educational purposes. Bottom line, we made it, it's ours, they made it, it's theirs. Seems simple, but if you're still confused, feel free to email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. We have no association with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of the other fine companies that make all this stuff we talk about. But, Kathleen Kennedy, if you need anything, let me know. I work for cheap. Now let's blow this thing and get out of here.